The cultists present Cinema of Cruelty. And this week on The Cinema of Cruelty, we ask the question, what happens when your lovers are singularly focused textual calligraphy fetishists? Would you aid them in their quest to recreate the daily life of a 10th century Hyung dynasty text? Would you sacrifice yourself to their decades-long publishing vengeance plot? Pretend to kill yourself as a token of affection? What about let them use your corpse as the pages of a book? Are these seriously the questions we're asking right now? Is this really the plot of this film? Well, let's find out. Because today we are reading the celluloid frames of Peter Greenaway's 1996 The Pillow Book. So sit back and grab a body and a brush as we slice into this mid-90s film that puts erotic back into formalism. Brought to you by The Lovers of Books The Books of Lovers Typewriters and Toilets The Enthusiastic Aid of Helpful Stalkers And, of course, Corpse Fucking And our safe word today is Vanilla Anything to add, Benji? I don't think there's anything that I can add that you and McGuire cannot add about five inches more of. You're traveling through another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of... Space! <laughs> Boy! Sometimes I doubt your commitment to sparkle motion. <laughs> I see you shiver with anticipation. Oh my God! Disappointed! Hey, London. Yo, Benji. Not my fuck off, whatever. Huh. What's up? Oh, just putting away this uh, calligraphy set I bought since this movie started up. You know, I, I somehow, I don't know, it just it calls to me. I can't really explain Does it. it. Does it now? Well, I'm looking forward to hearing about that, I suppose. Yeah, you had not seen this movie, right? I just surprised you with it. I never heard of this movie uh, prior to it. It is kind of fun to go into into a movie completely blind every now and then. A lot of the movies that we've picked in the past are movies that you or I have some familiarity with. But this one? No. I, I didn't even know who Peter Greenaway was. It's a fascinating thing, like, to watch the opening credits and say... Huh, I don't recognize a single name in this cast list or these credits. Ewan McGregor, he's a person. I guess I'll see a little bit of him in this, and I saw a lot bit of him in this movie. Yeah, so this movie was one I had seen, and for some reason, it just came to me as a movie to suggest. And when I learned that you had no idea what it was, I was like, okay. Don't even look it up. Just start watching <laughs> just, it and see what happens. Just take it in. And I hope that that is what you did. Also, I guess you haven't seen a lot of Ewan McGregor movies in general because... So Benji's first feedback to me was, okay, I started the day not necessarily intimately knowing what Ewan McGregor's dick looked like, and I'm not ending the day the same way. Like, all this tells me is that you've never seen a Ewan McGregor film. No, I've seen plenty of Ewan McGregor movies, just not the ones where he shows his dick in. Which, as you really felt the need to explain to me, are actually a lot of his films. Just not necessarily the ones I've seen. yeah, they are. You mentioned the Trainspotting films. I don't recall him getting his dick out in those. I remember 
uh, Velvet Gold Mine, and there's a concert scene there where he's playing a guy who just gets his dick out, flopping all around, just having a grand old yeah, time. Yeah, he hops about. Yeah, and I mean, some deleted scenes from Attack of the Clones, like when him and, you know, Anakin are having a little saber off, and they're like, this weapon is your life, Anakin. But no, I hadn't really watched any other films aside from Velvet Goldmine, which is just a brief moment. Yeah, I'm really surprised you haven't seen his dick much. Uh, yeah, well, you showed me that article that talks about how often he will do that in films. And after watching this, I can't blame him. Yeah, no, I mean, you McGregor, he's, he's packing some nice stuff. He, for the longest time, held the record as being the number one full frontal nude male on the A-list in Hollywood. So getting mm. paid A-list salaries, but having done the most full frontal nude films with those salaries, which, fuck yeah, Ewan McGregor. I mean, he was getting naked pretty much all throughout the 90s. <laughs> you know, normally doing that puts you on on, on, on the D-list. <laughs> I was going to say, power through it, buddy. You, power you, through you, it. You, you, did you see what I did there? It's a D-list? I do see what you did there. D-list. Yes. I for can dick. tell you think you're quite <laughs> clever. Dick. It's the D-list. <laughs> uh, Oh. Yes. So Ewan McGregor spent most of the 90s and early 2000s getting naked. He's going to get naked a lot in this film. So that is one thing you learned about from this film. So you learned two things, I guess. You learned about Ewan McGregor's dick and you learned about Peter Greenaway. Oh, I don't really know that I learned all that much about Peter Greenaway. I did look him up on Wikipedia briefly and I would like to look into more of his films. But I, after this, I get his style, which... I think one of the first things I texted you about this before I got to to that was just, this is a film that is making choices. There are distinct choices being made in this film because it has a visual style very unique that you do not see terribly often uh, in other films. I believe Peter Greenway, what little I could read about him was that he's known for the formalism in his films, which is more of a focus on, you know, the style and the lighting and the composition, less so, you know, story. And Yeah, so in a great little follow-up to Herzog here, we're going to have another dude <laughs> that does not give a fuck about the plot <laughs> of this movie. Although... In contrast to Herzog, it's not that he's doing somebody else's plot and is like, nah, fuck it, though. He just really likes what story is being told through the formalist decisions that he's making mm -hmm. more than perhaps a narrative structure. His narrative structure is not going to make a whole lot of sense in this, but it's fine. Yeah, it wasn't really until the second time through watching that I really got every single plot detail. But in all honesty, I don't think... Even if I hadn't watched it a second time, I would have been perfectly satisfied with the movie because it's not about the plot from point A to point B. No one gives a shit if this is following the hero's journey or some save the cat formulaic bullshit. This is just a fascinating and beautiful movie to watch. Yes, it is very sensual. It's very erotic, especially considering it's not dealing with traditionally erotic themes. So we will get into that here in a second. I do want to, I guess, set up Peter Greenway sure. for those who haven't heard of him either, because it is true that I think a lot of film people, even if they know a lot of directors, Peter Greenaway doesn't necessarily make the top lists of directors that people generally just know about, which is surprising because he does have his very specific style. You can kind of notice and discern a Peter Greenaway film by just watching clips of it. So he fits into that auteur theory that we've been talking about 
But yeah, for some reason, he's not as well known. He did start working in the 1980s. 1980 was his first full feature film, and his most recent film was in 2018. So this is a guy who's actually yeah. produced a lot of films mm -hmm. over some decades. This film for today, The Pillow Book, comes in 1996, so right in the middle of his career. But also, like Herzog, where we talked about how it's not the most Herzogian film that we could have picked to do, <laughs> in some ways, this is not the most Peter Greenaway film that we could pick to do, but it does still have a lot of his style coming through. But he is a Welshman by birth. He was born in Wales, grew up in Essex, now lives in Amsterdam. Mm. And a lot of his films actually, also like Herzog, tend to self-reference each other a lot. So he has a lot of just intertextual references with his own work. And he reminds me a little bit of Richard Kelly in that way, too, where Kelly has this one story he seems to really want to tell, and he keeps revisiting it through all of his films, like Donnie Dargo, Southland Tales, <laughs> The Box. They're all going to deal with this particular type of time travel that Richard Kelly seems to really want to get out there in the universe. Peter Greenaway has this film, his first feature film called The Falls, that came out in 1980. And my favorite just sum up quote on what The Falls is about is a mammoth, fantastical, absurdist encyclopedia of flight-associated material, all relating to 92 victims of what is referred to as the violent unknown event, or the VUE. And that's the plot of The Falls. And it's just a series of vignettes. We'll probably have to do it at some point on this, because it's kind of a fascinating formalist exercise. Mm -hmm. But these 92 victims that are going to come up in the falls are going to keep kind of cropping up in his other movies. And I think The Pillow Book is one of the only few films he's ever done that does not have any references to The Falls in it. Hmm. And so that's what I mean by it's like the least kind of greenaway film, because it somehow is separate from The Falls cinematic universe. canon, you know, like <laughs> magnum opus that he's working on over the years. Also a big sort of thing with him, the things that he likes, the common traits of Greenaway are the quote-unquote scenic composition and illumination and the contrast of costume and nudity, nature and architecture, furniture and people, sexual pleasure and painful death. After that's going to come movie, up in every single one of his films I'd and that comes up in this one yeah. in a big bad way. Definitely a big way. Yes, these objectification kind of things. So he is, in some ways, this great fetishist by nature. And he uses his camera to explore non-traditional forms of fetishism, which is really interesting since we already have fetishism and the idea of fetishism as being something against the grain or non-traditional. And so if you're going to then go non-traditional within what's already a non-traditional community or a non-traditional aesthetic is pretty great. And then final thing about Peter Greenway to set up the tone of this film is that he he does more than film stuff. He also does multi-mixed media projects. And his most famous one is probably this thing called The Nine Classical Paintings Revisited. Mm -hmm. And this was an art installation that he did in the mid-2000s. I think he started working on it in 2006. I think it displayed in 2008. And he took all of these traditional paintings and he digital media installed them and 
collaged and montaged over them in different forms. So there was all this classical music playing in the room, and then there was a, like kind of computer imaging that popped up that reimagined dialogue that was happening in the background of The Last Supper and stuff like that. It was just like all of these <laughs> different things of like, how can we take these classical paintings and reinterpret them through like seven different mediums that are happening all at once? And the New York Times review that I could find on this art installation said that it was possibly the best unmanned art history lecture you'll ever experience. And yet some viewers might respond to it as mediocre art, Disney-fied kitsch, or a flamboyant denigration of site-specific video installation. He says it like it's a bad thing. Yeah, well, this is kind of like beyond the black rainbow, right? Like, is that supposed to be a bad thing? But why I bring up this review of these nine classical paintings revisited is that it also is going to, I think, contextualize what we're about to talk about with this film, which is just this crazy collage of structure and things that you can do with a camera and how for some people this is going to be this amazing artistic endeavor, whereas for most people it's probably going to see like some sort of kitschy denigration of site-specific video installations, but in this case of like having multiple things that you can do with your camera in a film. Like, is this high art? Is this a really cool style? Or is this just like throwing everything but the kitchen sink and then maybe the kitchen sink into a film, (laughs) the technical components of a film? This film is equal parts collage and montage. It's a lot of stuff. Yeah. It is a lot of stuff. And so I'm just saying Peter Greenway, that's his style. And it's not just his style in filmmaking. It's like how he sees the world. Mm-hmm. And that's going to be kind of fun. Oh, I dig it. I look forward to learning more about his films uh, after this. So good introduction. So what is the best thing about this film for you? Oh, there's a lot of things I love about this film. I think the thing that I can respect about it the most is taking something like calligraphy and elevating the fetish love of such an art form because you know you think calligraphy you think oh no calligraphy that's that's pretty cool no i really i wouldn't think of it as something you're like oh fuck yeah calligraphy oh god yeah it's good writing but uh no this movie kind of takes you there in in an odd way it really paints a beautiful picture of how someone gets off in their own way to a fetish in this case calligraphy kind of made me think of uh Cronenberg's crash where you know car crashes that's not a thing that one fetishizes what are you talking about you watch that movie and you may not agree with it but you understand oh that's why they get off on car crashes okay (laughs) and at the end of this movie you say to yourself oh that's why this woman gets off on calligraphy so much okay all right I dig it Yeah, singular best thing about this film, it is a fetishist film, and I love that. So I am a big advocate for fetishism, and I absolutely love other people's fetishes, ones especially if they are ones that aren't as commonly explored. And so, yeah, seeing this eroticism of non-traditional erotic objects and the objectification of the body, love that shit. Mm -hmm. So... Great. A plus. Worst thing. Fat guy in the bathtub. Yeah, there were a lot of feelings, you know, I had (laughs) about certain national expressions. So, yes, we'll talk about that dude in the bathtub. For me, the worst thing is that 
there's no reason that this movie has to devolve into this like jealousy fest downer because <laughs> there's something really beautiful about the celebration of this fetishism. And I find that a lot of 90s erotic thrillers had this particular trope that this movie's going to fall into as well and in that we're going to do something that seems very super risque and daring and erotic at first, but by the end culmination of the film, they are going to be in some way punished for those actions. Mm-hmm. It's not going to end on this positive note. So we have all these like really cool things happening at first with the sexualization of non... Well, actually, they are sexualizing the body, but in a very objectified way. Mm-hmm. And they're going to explore different sort of realms of pleasure. There's going to be this hint at polyamory. And then that's all going to collapse, right? And there's no reason for the collapse. Yeah. So the worst thing about this to me is that it comes into this like weird height point of jealousy. So, lightning summary. (laughs) Oh, lightning summary of this movie. So we're going to have a young woman whose father is a poet who likes to practice calligraphy on people's skin. It's a little sort of ritual, especially on her birthday. And she's going to internalize the sensation, and she's going to search for that sensation for the rest of her kind of young adult life that we get to see. She also is going to be heavily influenced by this particular Japanese text that is called The Pillow Book, and I'll get into what that is here in a bit. And this woman's writings from the 990s in Japan are going to inform and interweave into her own sexual exploration journey. So we are going to open on this film, and we're going to open in this really fucking amazing way. It's so fascinating and really sets things up. It's this beautiful, I mean, just one, the visual, the opening credits play over this moving text. I imagine this is some form of Japanese or other Eastern writing that's, so, that's slowly scrolling up the screen. The red credits come up over that, and we get this chanting, and I've, yeah. I've heard a little bit of chanting like this, not too much, and it's very different Uh to, you know, say, Gregorian chanting that you might be used to in Western religions. This is something very different. Yes. Okay, so we're going to get this amazing, what's actually a Tibetan Buddhist prayer. The track itself is an offering to Gompo by Lama and the monks of the Great Four Orders, is the little collection of individuals who are going to perform this Buddhist prayer, it's going to have that great kind of like Tibetan throat singing and chanting that's Mm -hmm. happening. So we get this really cool, deep sound with a lot of little clicks as well. And the second that this discordant and yet also melodic sound opens the film in this guttural de profundis way in this insane aspect ratio (laughs) that looks like somebody's filming it with their iPhone, except for the fact that then you remember that this is 1996. (laughs) And so this ratio had not really become a thing yet. As it's scrolling down the screen, you're like, this movie is going to be different. (laughs) It's going to bring us something new. Um, yeah. I don't know if you want to talk about the aspect ratio well, here for a second before I get into these Tibetan throat singers. One of the very first things that I noticed, I I don't know if this is different for some people. I found this on YouTube, like rented it on YouTube, and the first thing that stuck out to me was that this is a 1-3-3 aspect ratio, what we used to call 
full screen, the aspect ratio of old televisions. And it was rare for a theatrical film to be natively shot in that aspect ratio. And but, but I thought to myself, oh, it's one three three. Okay, that's strange. But then as the movie pro- progressed, I kept thinking, wait, is it meant to be one three three? Because constantly throughout the film, the screen will switch to a wider screen. Sometimes one eight five, which is what most theatrical films were filmed in, and then later on, like there will be some shots that look like they're you know cinemascope anamorphic two point three five aspect ratio. And it constantly switches back and forth. Sometimes these wide screen shots are superimposed on the full screen shot. And I wasn't really too sure for a little while what the actual aspect ratio of this film was meant to be. But I'm pretty sure it was natively 133, even though the director is switching things up almost constantly throughout the movie. But all those different aspect ratios never leave the 133 frame. So... I'm going to assume that was Paul Greenaway's intended aspect ratio for this thing was one three three. And then, but even within the full screen frame of this initial shot, we get the black on either side of the frame, so that what we're seeing visually is really just like the portrait mode <laughs> of the cell phone that looks really weird when you're watching it on a widescreen TV because it's Mm -hmm. really going to exaggerate those blacks at the side. And so you just have this really long scrolling text. Mm -hmm. And that's going to be kind of cool too because what text we're getting here is the pillow book. So the pillow book is going to be this ancient text, which once again, I will talk about in a second. But so it's scrolling down and we're getting this sort of sensibility of the fact that we have the film representing the way that this language is being read, right? Because we're reading it from a specific scrolling pattern that is also the way that film actually runs through a camera as Mm -hmm. well. So it kind of really brings attention to just the mechanics of film and how film we actually do get just frame by frame, usually in a vertical scroll pattern when it's running mm-hmm. through actually a film camera. So a little that's bit kind faster of cool. than what we're seeing here, but yeah, you, same idea. And why this Tibetan throat singing, however, um, that opens our stuff is really, really cool. Because it's also going to be a little confusing, I think, if you know that it's Tibetan, because This movie is not going to take place in Tibet. It's going to take place in China, and it's going to take place in Japan. It is not going to take place Mm -hmm. in Tibet. So you're like, what is with this? But there are two reasons why we're going with this one. First is language, and then also the sound. And so this offering to Gompo, what this is going to be, is the 33rd Tibetan king, and he is credited with bringing Buddhism to Tibet, but more importantly, to this movie at least, for the creation of the Tibetan alphabet. There was a classic Tibetan that was spoken in the area during this kind of unification process that's happening, and yet this one individual is going to be kind of credited historically as creating an alphabet for this verbal language, and thus solidifying Tibetan as this literary language. So he brings that writing component Mm. in. And as we're going to see through this film, fetishizing the writing, the written word and the process Mm. of writing letters is going to be incredibly important to our protagonists. And then we're going to get 
this and we're also going to get like a whole bunch of mash of cultural stuff going on throughout this too so it's kind of like this <laughs> cool blend already and then we're going to get the sound and this sound is fascinating because of kind of the clicks and some of these like guttural things that are happening so there are studies and these studies are fascinating about the way that native japanese speakers process sound hmm. and this comes at first from a study that was done in the 1970s that has since been redone in 2016, and they keep finding the same results. So a little bit of story, a little story minute about uh, <laughs> language processing. So there are people I'm sure have heard of like the left brain and the right brain hemispheres in terms of your brain processing different stuff in different hemispheres of the brain. Now, sound actually is curious because people will process this in both the left and right sides, and they will process it in different sides depending on the sound. The left side of the brain is generally what lights up during language processing, and then the right side generally lights up with music and non-language sounds. So any sort of, you know, like the car horn honking or crickets chirping or whatever generally is this sort of right side brain. What's super cool about native Japanese speakers is that they tend so far in studies to show that the left brain is going to also light up during language, but it's also going to light up instead of the right brain when it comes to natural sounds, particularly insect sounds like mm. crickets chirping. Mm -hmm. And this is cannot stress this enough, not a genetic component. This is a linguistic learned component of native Japanese speakers. Mm -hmm. So people who learn Japanese as a second language don't tend to have this happen. But people who grow up within the theory is that there are certain constant and vowel patterns in Japanese that have a lot of overlap with certain natural sounds that might kind of influence this. There's also theories that it might have a cultural component as well, just because of the way that out of this relationship of left side processing of natural sound, there's a lot of Japanese poetry and literature that really focuses very heavily on natural sound. And so it kind of becomes this loop feedback system that feeds off of each other. But because of this, there tends to be this very interesting way that Japanese speakers process the natural environment on an auditory level. And do treat it in poetry and prose literature as a language in and of itself. And we are going to get that in the pillow book. The pillow book is going to, both the movie and the actual pillow book, are going to use sound or talk about sound constantly. It's one of the main ways in which the person who wrote the pillow book processed the world. One of the examples of just like a sound passage from... The pillow book is, with ears received at birth from one's parents, pure and without stain or defilement, with these ordinary ears, one can hear the sounds of 3,000 worlds, elephant, horse, carriage, ox sounds, bell, chime, conch, drum sounds, pipe, and flute sounds. They can hear all the different varieties of worlds and sounds in the 3,000 millionfold world. So we set up with this pillow book, this idea that the world is composed of little micro worlds and what distinguishes one micro world from the other is the sound that it's producing. Mm. And so sound is going to become very important. 
So it turns out there's a lot of setup to this movie. I'm not going to have as many notes throughout the movie, but we're going to set this up all Just here. You get know it me. Out like, ahead of time. Setups are important. <laughs> all right. So, what the fuck is the pillow book? So, the pillow book is going to be a collection or a diary of sorts that was written by Sei Shonagon in the 19, uh, not in the 1990s, in. 990s. The 990s. <laughs> the 990s. Back in the, the 10th 90s, century. man. You know, back in the crazy 90s. Yes, it was the during the Heian period of Japan. And she is going to be sort of an attendant to the empress at the time. And kept what is called a pillow book, sort of a diary of sorts. Was this book kept by her dresser, by the window, by the, the, the kitchen? Where was the book kept? It was kept in a little wooden drawer with a pillow on it, which oh, is why it's called a pillow book. Okay. Yes. This is like kind of a little journaling tradition. And because it's a journal, it's mostly just going to come in fragments, right? It's going to be observations about her day and the life of the court. It's going to have all of these random lists in it. Like she'll just have these lists of like things I find pleasant or like things that are terrible or <laughs> on meeting a lover. And so she's going to have these little sections. Lots of subtweeting going on in these things, got to say. Yeah, and so like it actually kind of creates this interesting genre in Japanese writing of that's this like miscellany type of just fragments that are getting thrown together. But at some point, somebody is going to find her diary and it's going to get read about the court and whatnot. This is going to remain one of the oldest published printed texts that we have, which is pretty cool. And it also just gives us a look into the daily life of this very particular period in Japan, especially for a woman in Japan at the time. And there's something that's also very cool and accessible about her writings, and she wasn't trying to create metaphors or literary narratives, like she's just observing the world. And most of that world's observation is going to come through the senses particularly touch and sound. So most of the things that she brings up and how she brings them up is through sound or through touch. That becomes very cool as an exercise, but it also then becomes interesting where what we have here with this film then, Greenaway's film, that's going to take this and say like, okay, this book is all about, this pillow book seems to be one woman's musings on sense and sensory observations and experience and this joy of writing. And sight is not going to be as much of a thing. And that becomes really curious to use a film to explore that because <laughs> we have a sensory exploration of the relationship between mediums, right? Like the flesh and skin versus paper and the body is text and then like sex and language. And mm. these are very touch and auditory based senses. But then we're going to explore that through the unifying medium of film which is a sight-based thing, so it becomes this voyeuristic exercise in the philosophical relation between other senses, and that's just crazy. So One day in the future when we've worked out a way to broadcast sensory outputs uh, for touch, then they'll remake this film and it'll, it will be awesome. Yes, you know, what was Smell-O-Vision? <laughs> well, we already have Smell-O-Vision. I mean, geez, get with the times. That's old hat. I'm talking about, like, you know, if a thing is fluffy, you broadcast fluffy, and people just feel the fluffy. Yeah, you just feel the fluffy. Mm -hmm. Theater-going experience of the future. Pornography will be the leading innovator in this. Trust me on that. Yes, fluffiness is not what we're going for here. <laughs> All right. So this is going to be, like, the setup, right? And there's a lot of shit just going up in this, like, scroll-down setup. One of my of favorite things from these here. opening credits is that it says, calligraphers so-and-so. The first time I watched this, I thought, 
calligraphers get high billing in a movie? That's interesting. And then you watch the movie and you think, oh, oh yeah, okay. This is a movie where calligraphers get high billing. That makes perfect sense. Yeah, there's going to be a lot of calligraphy here. And we are going to fade or cut, actually, we're going to cut to a girl, a young girl in Mm -hmm. black and white. Uh, young girl, our protagonist, uh, Nagiko, I believe I'm, is that right? Nagiko? Nagiko. Nagiko. She is getting her face painted, uh, well, her face written upon by her father, and her father is going to recite a poem. I'm just going to say the poem now, because we're gonna, we will hear this poem over and over again. It goes, When God made the first clay model of a human being, he painted in the eyes, the lips, and the sex. And then he painted in each person's name, lest the person should ever forget it. If God approved of his creation, he brought the painted clay model into life by signing his own name. And so we will hear that poem, I guess poem is the right term for this, over and over again throughout this. I think maybe the same number of times that Interstellar did that go quietly into the good night poem. The thing, though, is that like when they first set this up, it's curious because it's only the first time that they say it this way. Then he painted in each person's name, lest the owner ever forget it. Mm-hmm. That becomes an interesting statement because you're yeah. like, who is the owner in the equation? The owner being like the person whose body it is and thus their name or this idea of owning the body. And then later it's going to say, and then like God will also write his name. So the owner in this equation is not like a deity. And so it's really setting up, this is like kind of fetish spotting 101, this kind of idea of bringing the body into the space of full objectification as a owned possession. And that becomes a very cool linguistic choice there. They're not ever going to revisit that exact phraseology again, hmm. which is curious. Mm-hmm. <laughs> also, this is a slight change of the Japanese creation myth. So there's a Japanese creation myth, but it's a little bit more polytheistic. And so what we're going to have here is kind of this Christianization or this like kind of monotheization coming in and influencing Japanese society. Mm-hmm. And so we're getting another first look at the blending of culture that's going to happen here. This kind of cultural clash of mixed identities that are going to happen throughout the film. And yeah, in this, they're going to paint in the eyes, the lips, and the sex, which is apparently all you really need for a person, mm. really. Just those eyes, lips, and sex. And that is all you're going to need for a person in this film. I mean, if you want to get down to business and you need the essentials, yeah, eyes, lips, sex. I mean, that's about it. And this is where I began taking, I started trying to take notes, saying, okay, this part is in widescreen and it's in black and white, and then it goes into full screen and then it's in color. And I quickly gave up on that because this movie will switch (laughs) back and forth nonstop as we go. So I just decided, you know what, let's just assume at any given point, a shot can be in widescreen or full screen and in color or not in color. And maybe there are tiny little squares of video around the image. Who knows? It could always be happening. It's a little wild. and But we do get a brief moment where one thing that's not done, uh, I think, anywhere else in the film is that this young girl, Nagako, looks into a mirror and sees her face with the writing on it. And everything else is in black and white. But suddenly her f- reflection fades up into color. And then we have this a lot of text around the mirror of her full name, Nagiko Kiyohara no Matsuki Sai Shonagan. I may have butchered that, my apologies. But that is meant to be her full name. 
What does that mean? Okay, so what we have here basically is that her name is the name... So, say Shonagon is going to be who's attributed to writing the pillow book, and yet this is actually not a name so much as a title or a position within the court. And so there are discussions about what this person's actual name might be. And Nagiko is going to be one of the popularly pitched possible names. And so that is also going to be the name of our character. She's going to take on that name. And then the name in the middle there is actually the name of the father of the actual historical Nagiko, who was a Japanese poet. So the person who they think is Sei Shonagon is the daughter of this one particular poet who also has this dude's name. Mm -hmm. So basically, daughter of so-and-so, you know, like, this person who wrote the pillow book. Mm -hmm. And so we're getting that title, but we're getting it over her reflection that she's looking into. So she is being reflected throughout history here, I suppose, or just being named the same thing. Hey, it's a good name. There's no time to talk about, though, because smash cut to the big city. Sometimes you may hear me say smash cut or, you know, hard cut. Typically what we mean by that is that it's a cut to something that is so wildly different than the scene that we're currently in. Often it comes with a jump in sound or a completely different color palette. And that's what happens here because we are in this black and white shot and then suddenly loud sounds were now in... I guess Tokyo or Hong we're in Hong Kong actually that makes more Kong, sense yeah. given the events later in the film and we meet grown up Nagiko who is modeling now at nighttime and <laughs> I mentioned this earlier there are all these little squares of video happening around just showing semi related things a shot of someone else modeling, a shot of caterers bringing food around, but they are so small on the screen, I feel like this would only make sense if you saw it more on a theatrical screen, a big screen. And it's a very just disproportionate ratio as well in terms of we're going to get the master establishing shot of the Hong Kong skyline. And then just in the top corner, we're gonna get this montage passage of time of different fashion shows that she is participating in. So time is passing through whatever runways she's walking, but it's gonna be very small in the top corner. And that simultaneous establishing an action is gonna happen a lot throughout this film. Like. We're never doing just one thing. Right. We're always showing like two different events simultaneously because like Greeno is like we just don't have time. That's, that's why I say this film is it's just constant montage. There is no real moment where we are just we're solid. We're just doing this one scene. We're just doing shot reverse shot. Maybe there are periods that that happens, but it lasts for about twenty seconds at most throughout the whole movie before we start fading in and out of all this stuff. And what comes really interesting as well is it's not like when we talked about I woke up early the day we died with the Eisenstein kind of like Soviet theory of montage where you have a bunch of images that are supposed to connect and build upon the larger story. So fragments of a story where you mm -hmm. have the baseball and the ear and you're like, oh, these two things interrelate. Right. Because these are interrelating, but they're not abstract images. They are just two non-metaphorical things that are happening simultaneously. So it's a very different use of montage than like the Soviet school, which is very interesting. Yeah, it reminds me of if you film a scene and you have your main action, sometimes you'll also shoot coverage of something else happening 
around you, and that's often used to cut together. Here, it seems like they shot their main action, and then the coverage just ends up in the frame, but in these little thumbnail image boxes. Yeah, so I guess it's a little Herzogian, too. Like, the place is being showcased here. Like, the plot passage of time, that's a thumbnail in the corner. Yeah, so very interesting choices. This movie is making some choices. And as we get this passage of time, we keep going back and forth, too, between times. So we go to modern Hong Kong, where she has become a model, a high fashion model. But then we're also going to keep cutting back to different birthdays that she has growing up. And we're going to know that it's the past because it's going to go back to this kind of like black and white footage Mm -hmm. and a totally different aspect ratio than like the full stuff that's going on in the modern day. And we're going to get the sense that this is a birthday ritual for her, that her father is going to paint this creation myth on her face and recite it. And then her aunt at some point is going to retell her the story of the pillow book and how there was this woman in 10th century Japan that wrote all of these fragments of her life down. And on our Nagiko's 28th birthday, this text is going to be exactly a thousand years old Mm -hmm. and to think about that think about her place in history and how women throughout time are just going to have this yeah experience i guess that is both different and similar to one another that she's just in this lineage and she really likes this idea and so she's like this all sounds cool i think i'm gonna write my own pillow book she just really wants to kind of contribute We're also going to get throughout these intersections of what's going to pop up on the top of the screen, and it's going to say, the pillow book section, and then it's going to have a number. Lots of sections. This thing had so many sections. Yes, because this thing only had sections, right? Because it was a diary, and so it was just this woman's musings of her day. The original Nagiko was thorough, if nothing else. Yes, and there's going to be just like this whole thing. Yeah, these whole vibes of her just being like, okay, so this is what happened. But it's not necessarily like, today I ate a peach. It's going to be more just observations Mm -hmm. on the things around her. And the modern feel that some of these have. So one of the things that's not going to come up specifically in the movie, but I just kind of brought passages in. I cannot bear men who believe that women serving in the palace are bound to be frivolous and wicked, yet I suppose their prejudice is understandable. After all, women at court do not spend their time hiding modestly behind fans and screens, but walk about, looking openly at people they chance to meet. Yes, they see everyone face to face, not only ladies-in-waiting like themselves, but even their imperial majesties, whose names I hardly dare to mention. High court nobles, senior courtiers, and other gentlemen of high rank, in the presence of such exalted personages, the women in the palace are all equally brazen, whether they be the maids of ladies-in-waiting or the relations of court ladies who have come to visit them, or housekeepers or latrine cleaners, or women who are of no more value than a roof tile or a pebble. Small wonder that the young men regard them as immodest. Yet are the gentlemen themselves any less so? They are not exactly bashful when it comes to looking at the great people in the palace. No. Everyone at the court is much the same in this respect. So these like little observations of like, yeah, people are kind of baller around here. (laughs) Also, the Heian period in Japan was very much one that revered art and culture. And so we have already the setup here, the pillow book of these were women who dared look at other people, right? 
They just approached what they wanted. They looked at what they wanted. And that's going to become a thing for our character as well, is this sort of modern woman who is going to go after what she wants sexually. And the men are going to be the same. And it's all just pleasures of the flesh. And just to place a little bit better, the high period was, I believe, what, the mid-700s to mid-1100s, somewhere in there? Yeah, so like 794 to 1185, to be precise. So the father is also going to be like... Writing is super, super cool and super important to me as well. It's going to be something that they share. And it's something that the publisher also shares. So the father has this publisher. And little Nagiko is going to look through a screen one night. And she's going to witness some sort of sexual interaction between her father and this publisher for... What apparently is supposed to be him pressuring him, like the publisher is blackmailing him for money and sex to like publish his stuff, but that doesn't really come across very strongly <laughs> on the screen here. Like it just seems like they might be fucking. Yeah, they mentioned blackmailing a lot throughout this movie. I didn't get any blackmailing. I just got a writer wants to publish a thing and this publisher says, mm, well, for sex, I'll publish it. And the writer just says, mm, okay, sounds good to me. Let's do it. But blackmail, I don't know where that came from. It's... It doesn't seem like the publisher has compromise on the writer, the Nagako's father, so I don't know what the blackmail thing's all about. Yeah, well, I also don't know about, like, the coercion either, because there's no dialogue in the scene. We just see it from the little girl's perspective that something seems to be going on, and we get the sense that it's sexual, and she's like, years later, I wouldn't know what I saw at the time, and you're like, okay, so they fucking. But at the same time, like... (laughs) We never have anybody directly verbally say, like, if you want me to publish this book, you're going to have to fuck me. We just see these two dudes ambiguously exchange some stuff. So I don't know. I don't know what is happening here. But yeah, it doesn't set it up very strongly. And then we get her in present day. As she grows older, she keeps trying to find men that are going to write on her skin mm-hmm. in the way that she has come accustomed to, to just really enjoy that sensation. And so we just have this flirtation through writing on spines montage, which is pretty great. Yeah. And then little, we little dudes. jump back to a slightly older child, Nagiko, who's getting her face painted again, a birthday tradition. And this is when they're visiting an aunt in Kyoto. And her aunt is the one who encourages her to start writing her own pillow book. And that just sounds pretty awesome. And young Nagiko wanders around the streets while there we get more readings from the pillow book superimposed on the screen. That happens so often. There will be two or three different elements that we're fading in and out of almost constantly throughout this film. And for some reason, one of the ones that stuck out to me when I was rewatching this was... Anything colored indigo is splendid. And she's just going to have a list of things that are indigo. And I'm like, you know what? You're right. Anything that is colored indigo is splendid. And what's really interesting about that sticking out is that as the film goes on, they're actually going to have a callback to that one specifically. And I was like, well, that's weird, because that is the one that sort of stuck out at the beginning (laughs) of the movie. But yeah. Uh, Throughout all this, this is a moment where Nakiko goes to the publisher that her father writes for and sees the father coming out of the publisher's office the publisher is putting his robe back on so clearly there was something else going on there and she also talks to a young boy that voiceover tells us is going to be Nagiko's future husband yeah apparently the publisher's like so I have this nephew who's like kind of my apprentice and your kid's gonna marry my nephew kid and this apparently is you know just how it's gonna go 
a moment I had to childishly laugh at was when Nagiko and her father are walking out. He says, oh, I'm sorry, I had to meet my publisher on your birthday. Was it his birthday, too? Well, possibly. Did you write on his face, too? I probably should have. Something about that, I'm like, <laughs> yeah, you could write in his face. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> With you dick. Paint all over it. Yeah. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm shipping it. It's a fun, fun little dynamic. Present day, Nagiko is more ink, uh, red ink on her back by an older man, and I think she briefly reads something in Mandarin. It sounded like Mandarin. I'm no expert on Japanese versus uh, Mandarin slash Cantonese, but that definitely sounded like Mandarin to me in a brief moment. Yeah, so we're going to go back and forth a lot here in terms of what lettering she's using. Mm -hmm. So it does seem like she is of both Japanese and Chinese descent. I think her mother seems to be Chinese and her dad is Japanese. Mm -hmm. And... This is going to culminate in her identity going back and forth between China and Japan, and then that's also going to show in her writing. And so during the Heian period, actually, there was a lot of Chinese influence that had already seeped into Japanese culture. And the Heian period was a lot about trying to recarve a specifically Japanese space and finding their own empowerment within this cultural dynasty. And... A lot of that's going to come down to what type of writing was used when and how. Mm. And then we also get a very gendered form of writing where for the longest time, men would write in different forms of Chinese letters and symbols. Women were not encouraged to do so. In fact, they were rather ridiculed sometimes if they did. Like, some women did. Oh, and wow. I think <laughs> Sei Shonagon did have kind of a mixture as well in the pillow book, but I do think it's primarily in Japanese. And so women generally wrote in Japanese. And that becomes this kind of interesting conflict where we have modern day, like our movie protagonist, Nagiko, learning some Chinese characters from her mother. So this times have changed, right? yet still really loving and respecting this kind of Japanese language from the pillow book, the historical pillow book. And so she's going to mix those a lot throughout what she's writing on people's skin or like what she's reading and saying out loud. And we won't point out all of the differences of times because Aww. this is either something what? that interests you or it doesn't and you'll notice it or you won't. <laughs> but like, yeah, the lettering changes quite a bit at different points in times. And it's a cool detail, but it also is not my primary area of expertise yeah. so it's yeah i can notice it a little bit but i cannot tell you the detailed breakdowns of which letters come from which linguistic yeah, that, branches that so. what little i understand of kanji or japanese writing is that yeah they're pretty similar and telling them apart is really tricky but she's yeah she's going back and forth and at some point we're gonna get that like middle ground of her life where she's Married to this publisher's nephew now. No, not not a great dude. It. Yeah. Not a happy marriage. Guy, like, tells her don't have as so many books, shoots an arrow through her books a few times. Like, well, dick move. Yeah, and you're like, dick move, bro. But I don't know if, like, maybe he's harboring some resentment towards the publishing and literary world because of his uncle. Because apparently we're supposed to think of this uncle as kind of like a bad dude. I'm going to push against that a little bit. But <laughs> apparently this guy is just really not down with writing, not down with, like, the literary arts. 
This chick by now we've come to understand that's super important to Mm -hmm. her. And it's her birthday and she really wants her husband to write on her face and continue the ritual of what gives her pleasure. And he's like, I'm not going to do it, though. And so he storms out and she very sadly picks up this calligraphy pen and looks at herself in the mirror and is trying to write on her own face. And it's this like futile masturbation scene Uh, where she's like, I can't get myself off. And I'm like, girl, you're going to need to learn how to masturbate, even if this dude is fully pleasing you. Like, that's a skill set you should probably get down with. Just, you know, like, so you have options. Mm -hmm. But she's not gonna seem to be super down on writing on herself for a while but this also is another moment that's actually kind of taken from the pillow book Uh so there's like this passage in the pillow book or section where she talks a lot about women who don't get to live their full bliss and passion and it comes across as very cool and modern feminist especially when you're thinking this written in like 991 or whatever says, when I make myself imagine what it is like to be one of those women who live at home, faithfully serving their husbands, women who have not a single exciting prospect in life, yet who believe that they are perfectly happy, I am filled with scorn. Often they are of quite good birth, yet have had no opportunity to find out what the world is like. I wish they could live for a while in our society, even if it should mean taking service as attendants, so that they might come to know the delights it has to offer. Pretty badass. So it's like this whole little section of fuck being like this housewife to the husband's whims and she's Sonagon, she actually doesn't need to extract herself from the situation because you know she's already living in this kind of attendant life or whatever sure, but yeah. our Nagikao is gonna be like you know what fuck this shit I'm burning this shit to the ground like literally gonna burn this shit to the ground well, it's it's brought on because her husband one reads her diary thinking that that's just what you do apparently he says why would anyone have a diary unless you want someone else to read about it like fuck off dude that's not what you do and then he just burns it right in front of her this pillow book that she's been working on for possibly years and that sets her off those are my observations of my life man you're burning my life yeah fuck you i'm gonna burn everything down and she runs out she says that was one of two fires in my life and that was the first that got me out of Japan and takes I think her- it's one of many fires. So apparently this bitch just keeps setting fires, she but is so- this is going to be the first one. Bit of a pyro action there. Yeah. Somebody taking the pillow book and reading it when it was not supposed to be read is something that's going to happen to the historical pillow book. This is actually how we have the historical pillow book is that at some point it was found by somebody in the courts and they started reading it and they started reading it aloud and they started passing it around the court. Oh. And that's... As they say is history. That's how it kind of got out. But well, they didn't burn it, though. Oh, well, well you know, that's that's good. But we, yeah, this chick's going to be like, no, I should burn, burn the world together. Because somebody just want to see the world burn. You know, we, we've, we've talked about that. And so she's going to be another one. So many bitches She takes out things there. very literally. For somebody who treats sex so metaphorically, she's going to take <laughs> the purging of her life in scorn quite directly. Now, she, yeah, she burns shit to the ground and she moves to Hong Kong to start working her way into her own life. So she's going to go and take on, as the book passage said, right? Even if you have to become an attendant. Mm -hmm. So in this case, it's like, even if she has to become like a dishwasher in a kitchen, at least she is out there and she is living and seeing what life has to offer. All right. There are two bits about this that kind of confuse me. Well, not really confuse me, but I just, maybe I wasn't aware of something. When she goes to Hong Kong, in voiceover she says, I wanted to work to perfect the Mandarin that my mother had taught me. 
And that confused me with her being in Hong Kong, because I always understood Hong Kong as its language being Cantonese, which is a dialect of Chinese spoken more in the southern part of the country, not so much Mandarin, which is more of a mainland language. But maybe they do speak Mandarin in Hong Kong, I just don't know. The other thing was that Nagiko is now a completely different woman. Like, literally, this is a different woman. From maybe the, cast her? This is what I'm trying to figure out. Is this just to show a passage of time? Because she doesn't look any older, she just looks like a different person. Nagiko, when we see her in her married life, is played by a woman who looks fine. But then when she moves to Hong Kong, she now looks like a model. What what happened here? What did I what am I missing? Why is Nagiko so this suddenly could be a combination of a symbolic change in terms of this like growth and flowering or whatever? And it could also be the casting to play like a younger version versus like an older in the way that some people, you know, like some films will cast teenage version sure, versus sure, adult yeah. version and sometimes you'll put like, the actor in weirdly long hair and braces and like, pretend that this is what they look like at like 12 or whatever <laughs> but so i'm not sure which one specifically mm-hmm. is happening here or maybe both but yeah she blossoms in hong kong for sure and yeah. she starts washing dishes and then she tries to learn how to use a typewriter this and typewriter the, this is going to be the bane of her existence yeah, this typewriter fascinated me yeah the typewriter was really cool to like watch mm-hmm. happen and whatnot but she who has the greatest highest respect and esteem for the art of calligraphy is gonna be like fuck this mechanical writing mm-hmm. although she is gonna try for a second to see if it can fulfill her so she's gonna rub a bunch of white out on her chest and push the typeset off of the paper, like onto her chest to transfer the letters to see if that's going to be in any way the same experience. And no, this mechanical (laughs) bullshit is like not the same. (laughs) It's not the same as doing it in person, I guess. Yeah. Throws in the toilet. To hell with you, typewriter. And it is such an amazing shot. Like, I never thought I'd be so delighted to see. Well, first of all, I never thought I'd see a shot of a typewriter in a toilet. And then I never thought I would get so much joy out of seeing a shot of a typewriter in the toilet. Because this thing does not fit in the toilet. No. It's just going to be skewed and tried to, like, shove in there. And most of it's just going to be off the top of the toilet. And then the toilet's going to be running with this rush of watering sound. And it's another moment where you're called attention to the sound that it is in this movie. Because once again, sound really important in both pillow books in terms of its own kind of language. And yeah, so she's like, fuck that typewriter. Oh, I should mention though, when we say typewriter, we're not referring to like a QWERTY keypad type of typewriter that we're used to in the West. This thing is, I suppose, meant to create the strokes you would have in calligraphy to create Japanese characters, it seems like you have to hunt and peck to find each individual stroke for each character and move the next character over. It was just fascinating to look at, and I've never seen one of these things in real life, so I was just wondering, like, wow, what is this thing? Is that how you have to type? If you're typing something out in Japanese? That's fascinating. Yeah, I mean, I guess it would, because kanji is this creation of shapes and I have learned from my friends who speak and write it that it does specifically matter which stroke you start with and then like which one's the second one which one's Mm -hmm. the third one and I guess how many strokes you take so each symbol actually is a set number of strokes that fascinates me because I definitely love languages I studied a lot of languages but 
I do not have a great working knowledge of kanji and Mandarin and this like kind of pictorial based stuff. My mm-hmm. stuff was always a little bit more like Finnish, Russian, you know, like the, the boring, like not boring because I loved it, but the linear stuff, <laughs> really. <laughs> like as long as you get the A, um, you know, down on the paper, you're fine. However you want to fucking write it. <laughs> In terms of this very set number of strokes, like that's a very cool concept to me, mm-hmm. but... So I guess you'd have to do that then with a typewriter as well. So that does seem like a process. And she does not like this process. No, no, no. We also get her interacting with this one dude whose brother or friend or something is part of this protest party that will only write in green ink to symbolize the Green Party cause that they're kind of making fun of a little bit. But they're also then using the skin to write on. So they're kind of talking about how, well... At least the protesters should be down with us because we're not killing any trees. We're using the skin, mm-hmm. right, to do this. So, like, they should be square with us. Like, yeah. everything's chill. We get the most, huh, moment of the whole film when in narration she says, I was determined to speak English with an American accent. But she says it with a very British accent. So, yeah, done failed? I don't know. Yeah, it was such a bizarre, because they're not going to go to America ever either. So, like, it's just an out-of-nowhere kind of statement. But it is also hilarious, because Vivian Wu, who is playing our main protagonist, is an American actress. What? When? Huh? But... (laughs) Which makes it even weirder. So, like, technically, this is a British film, (laughs) because it was produced through British company. Oops. By Peter Greenaway, but she's going to say in a very British accent that she wanted to learn and speak English in an American accent. She's capable of an American accent. She's American, so I don't know. Uh, I don't know. Layers upon layers. I don't know if this is just like a combination of cultural clashing and mixing. Not clashing, but like this cultural like soup we have here, but it sticks out for a moment because I'm like, what? what's happening? Yeah, here? and just in general, you would think... Wait, why? Why do you want to speak with an American accent? That's not going to do you any good in Hong Kong. If anything, that might, like, take you a rung down. Who knows? It's not going to do you well anywhere, yeah. really. Like, it's, <laughs> it's not the best accent. Pick something else. It's fine. There are so many better accents out there. But she starts working. It's weird. She says, I got work at a designer's office. And she's answering the phone for one scene. And then the next scene, she's modeling. So, clearly... Not doing office work for very long. She just goes straight into modeling. Yeah, she worked her way up quick in this fashionable world. Mm-hmm. She's going to meet a man. Well, she's going to like try out a whole bunch of different lovers and mm-hmm. people because she's even going to tell us like she's not really sure which one is more important to her, right? Like a good calligrapher who's a poor lover or a poor lover who's a good calligrapher because she can't seem to find one that's both a good calligrapher and a good lover. I think she says uh, older men were great calligraphers, but the passion just was not there. Younger men were great lovers, but they could not focus on calligraphy. So Yeah, so um, but I'm like, are there no middle-aged men in Hong Kong. Like, <laughs> There's gotta be a happy medium, yeah. This, this Gold, Goldilocks dudes, like, she's like, yeah, <laughs> old dudes know how to do calligraphy, but they can't work with what I got. Young dudes, like, okay, they can stay hard, but they don't know calligraphy. And I'm like, well, surely there's people in between, you know, right. that might be mediocre at both, or might Teenagers, be middle-aged both. Teenagers, senior no. citizens, woman, date a man who's 45, you'll find the happy medium, don't worry. It's- 
it's a dichotomous world, apparently, with lovers and calligraphers. <laughs> and what's also going to be kind of interesting is that we're going to get this weird like, superimposed postcard thing going on. Mm-hmm. So we get the color of parchment, and then we get this date seemingly on the back of this postcard that says 1997. And that's interesting to me because, like, this film came out in 1996. So this is a deliberate forwarding of the time period of our film by one year. But in her quest to find a calligrapher slash lover, Nagiko meets baby Ewan McGregor. I say baby Ewan McGregor, he's not a baby, but I'm so used to him looking a certain way and he's so baby-faced in this movie. Yeah, he is. He's got that luscious little long locks of hair. He's, he's working in this movie. He really is. He's so charming. Yes, he's a translator named Jerome, and she's really into that because she says, wow, you know a lot of different languages. You can write in different languages on my body, so you need to do that right goddamn now. They're in a restaurant that has, you know, beds you can lay down on, which I know that's a thing. It's just not something you see very often in real life. Uh, it should be more of a thing. It's amazing. <laughs> For some reason, I do associate it with being, like, a very 1990s thing, too. Like, the 1990s seems like a time that had these coffee shops that just had (laughs) beds and couches. That fun, wonderful time when all of a sudden it's like, come hang out at coffee and tea shops. Have an espresso and lay out on our queen-size bed. Yes, on our duvet that is (laughs) here. Yeah, so she's going to meet Ewan McGregor, and she's like, oh, you're a translator, you say? You know multiple languages, you say? Here's a little calligraphy pen right on me. Write the word for titties on my titties. Go. In Yiddish, motherfucker. And then she starts with her arm or something. She's like, write your name on me. Mm -hmm. And I was like, well, that's a fantastic opening line icebreaker. (laughs) (laughs) Write your name on my body. Like, claim it. And he does. And she looks at it with kind of disdain. And she's like, okay, I'll give you another chance. (laughs) (laughs) And then she opens the back of her dress. And she's like, all right, write something in three languages. And so he's going to, like, do it. She's going to lay on the pillow so that it imprints on the pillow so she could look at his work and summon over the waitress. And she's like, okay, we're going to need another pillowcase. (laughs) And we're like, okay, so this is the thing you apparently do. You come here a lot to do this because this woman does not bat an eye at, like, having to go get another pillowcase. Well, the number of things that nobody bats an eye at in this movie is astronomical so I'm not surprised that the waitress doesn't give a shit here either that's true I love this like neutralizing space that's happening throughout this movie about this body as text and currency and commodification in a way that just becomes natural because later they're going to be out and about and she's going to be like oh we didn't have any money but I paid with my palm and it's going to show that she has written beautiful calligraphy on her palm and the owner of this bar has xeroxed it or like you know made a photocopy of it and that was enough payment so it's like this naturalization of everybody's into this fetishization aesthetic that you can pay with calligraphy and body parts but here she is going to reject him like she's like okay whatever the fuck you're doing here it's not writing She's like, you're not a writer. You're a scribbler. Go. I love that she's so distinct. Like, no, this is not writing. This is scribbling. Get the fuck out. Also, this dude never said he was a writer. He said he was a translator. (laughs) (laughs) Accusing him of like, you're not a writer. It's like, did he ever say he was? Like, I I don't know. But he wants to make up for it. He's like, wait, 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 wait. I got a plan here. He lifts up his shirt and he says, write on me. He's like, show me. Use my body like the pages of a book. Like your book. (laughs) Like, Ewan's accent is, like, just so adorable on that line. Use my body like the pages of a book. 
like your book. And you're like, okay, that's working. That's working a little bit, buddy. <laughs> He's like, I'll be objectified for you, right? Like, let's do it. And she's like, what? No. How can I get pleasure writing on you? You're supposed to write on me. And it's like this great <laughs> moment of like inversion where he's like, show me, right? Like teach me. And she's like, no, this is not about your body. This is about mine. And so this really cool momentary like pause on like, wait, what is, what is it that is like tapping into this sexual sensual pleasure for me? And is it purely sensory or is it actually the act itself? And she's never thought about it, right? She's always just assumed that sex has to be this way for her and she's never had a dude volunteer to do it the other way and so she's like i'm gonna have to think about this and she has a little bit of a sexual panic here in this Mm -hmm. restaurant where she just looks kind of frozen at first you're like okay this dude seems pretty chill but then she's gonna run out of the cafe she's too overwhelmed and he's gonna laugh and i'm like dick move bro (laughs) that's unnecessary you just tip the scale from being this cool open-minded guy that's like yeah let's rethink the sexual paradigm to just laughing at her not being quite there yet so i'm like all right you lost me bro like you're gonna get me back once you start fucking 75 year old men because awesome but in this moment (laughs) he's a dick in like a not great way and she's gonna go home though and she's gonna explore and Mm -hmm. she's like all right can i get off the other way and She's a little nervous about having to perform because she's never been the one to write on people before. Mm-hmm. And she's going to practice on her own body first. And she's going to have a very heavy hand when she does it. And so it's going to be frustrating. Once again, we're going to get this like futile calligraphy masturbation thing happening where she's she can't satisfy herself. I was going to say, we're talking about a woman alone in her bathtub trying to explore her sexuality, heavy hands. And we are not talking about masturbation at all here. We're talking about her using her own finger on a foggy mirror that's next to the bathtub. And she's just like, oh, I can't quite Well, get- and later she's actually going to get the calligraphy sort of brush as well mm-hmm. and do it on her body. And she's going to have two, like, heavy of strokes. And... Well, we both are, and we're not talking about masturbation here, because that's the really wonderful thing about this fetishistic gaze that's happening, is that fetishism is its own form of legitimate sexual and erotic expression, but it's not going to be so in the traditional way, right? Mm. This is a fetishistic sex act. So this is sex for our main protagonist here. So it is a masturbation scene, by fetishistic definitions. And so that's kind of really cool because for a more, can't say the safe word yet, but mainstream (laughs) audience, then this probably would be at least still, I would imagine, readable as a metaphor for sex and masturbation. But for the fetishistic gaze, this is just a sexual act. So it's actually kind of working on both levels here. But it's not working for her because she can't get off on it. Like, it's it's a failed sex act. Damn it all. Let me ask you something really quick. Yeah. What are nipples like? You know what? They are like bronze buttons. Oh. Apparently. Oh. Apparently. Because, yeah, we're just going to (laughs) get nipples like bronze buttons. And I'm like, there's a transition. (laughs) We're not going to get just the shot of nipples like bronze buttons. We're actually going to get the words on the screen and the reading of these words, nipples like bronze buttons. And you're like, you want to talk about a smash cut? Even though I was just looking at some nipples on the screen, I was not expecting that. So props. Yeah. And it's a series of things like navels are like 
overturned saucer cups uh, on it on and on and the weird one not really the weird one but just the one that makes you kind of like tee giggle penises like small pickles or or something like sea slugs or something slugs like sea slugs or cucumbers like, and she calls them very crude writing instruments like well yes i i'm with you yeah which goes back to this more fetishistic gaze or there's not the penis that can satisfy her right like that is not a delicate instrument of her erotic sexual experience it's the pen mm-hmm. for some reason it's reminding me of that like sean connery snl the penis mightier or whatever like no the pen is mightier gushing it up however you want to trebek the question is does it work and like no she's saying no it doesn't work only the pen works and yeah we're gonna get this listing of the body parts once more this objectification of the human body bodies like objects Mm -hmm. and that's that's the greenaway mantra right and She's going to decide, like, okay, I think I'm ready to try this out, to explore this a little bit, but I'm still a little bit nervous, a little bit hesitant. So I'm going to try writing on this super old British dude who knows nothing of any other culture to practice my inverse sexual awakening on. She's going to need to knock him out, and this guy is out. I uh, have to say, it's in some just a giant room. I guess it's her apartment on a bed. They are both nude. And this older man is just zonked out. I don't know what she gave him. It's kind of a reverse Sleeping Beauty situation where it's the old guy that goes to sleep and the young woman is the one that's going to do everything. Yeah, it's it's curious because he does spend the rest of the scene just passed out. And nobody's going to comment on that. And I'm like, I find this vaguely question you know like i have questions yeah did she chloroform this guy how is he this out because it's not that he's a heavy sleeper because her and a photographer who's going to come in are crawling all over this guy to get the pictures they want and he doesn't budge so something has happened to this guy yeah it's like did you drug this dude or is he just a heavy sleeper like i have questions but you guys don't seem to so fine but yeah she's gonna call this dude who we haven't really talked about yet but It's her stalker. So she has a stalker who, like, follows her around in a van. And he started becoming her stalker when he was first a fashion photographer. And he used to take a bunch of pictures of her. And she let him write on her once. So basically they had, like, a one-night calligraphy stand. And he's like, "But but I love you. And she's like, that's great. And you can continue to stalk me. But I don't want to have calligraphy sex with you because you just don't do it for me. And why he doesn't do it for her, because he's like, well, use me, right? Like, why do you have to use this random old stranger when I'm right here and I'm willing and ready to be your object? And she's like, that's great. But see, your skin, it's not right. And she shows how his skin runs ink, right? Like she takes the ink and puts it on him. And she's like, that's why I call you the blot in my journals or like her own pillow book. That's kind of a bitch thing to say to someone because (laughs) the skin is not his fault, especially it's not his fault that the makeup department just clearly slathered like a ton of body oil on him so that this ink would run, right? Like maybe, you know, he just doesn't put on that much body oil and like he'd be fine. But this is supposed to, I guess, be like the natural content of his skin. So she's like... I can't have sex with we you. Just can't do like, that. like, sex for me is this writing, and you can't fulfill that. So it's kind of cool that she can directly state, like, "Hey, we're incompatible. You don't interest me." But you can still like, kind of take pictures mm-hmm. of me and the people that I calligraphy fuck. There also seems to be a bit of prejudice in her 
non-desire to do this because when he says, right on me, before she even brings up the skin thing, she says, I can't ride on you. You're from Kyoto. Like, whoa, whoa, slam on the boys from Kyoto. What the fuck, lady? Yeah, but maybe this is some sort of very nuanced, like, cultural thing that is being explored here. I don't know. Because, yeah, I don't know enough about, like, the nuance of those regions. If this is, like, the equivalent of a New Yorker being like, I can't have sex with you because you're from Jersey. <laughs> or if that's, like... <laughs> Kyoto, the like, Jersey maybe, of Japan. I, <laughs> I have no idea. But oh, that's, I, I guess, in my mind, like, what's happening is the way that, like, New Yorkers are just, like, super bitchy to people from New Jersey. Which, apologies, New Jersey. Yeah. People from New Jersey are totally fuckable. Like, whatever. <laughs> But the cool thing that they're going to do is take all those photographs and assemble them into a pretty badass art piece. I kind of want to do something like like what they do in this movie, where they take all the pictures of the you know, the writing and this guy's body and they put them together in like this beautiful collage. Yeah, it's a little bit like the serial killer movie Seven, and it's a little bit like Pomo postmodern art, and it's 100% awesome. <laughs> they just have like these Polaroids that are just getting constructed. So it's the puzzle pieces of the body as object getting assembled back together as something new. Once again, very cool breakdown of like body versus text versus art versus object. Oh, yeah. And yeah, it does look cool, especially since it's like spread out on this baller light box table, and you're like, yeah, I see what you're doing. Nagiko also sends the written text of what she wrote on this guy's body to a publisher, has her stalker deliver it, and she gets a rejection letter back from the publisher that says, we cannot accept this, and in a real bitch move of a rejection letter, says, this is not worth the paper it is printed on. Like, okay, publisher... You just say no. You don't have to throw her down even yeah, more Yeah, we than regret that. to inform you. But no, there's two lines on this, and it is, we are not able to publish this material. It's not worth the paper it's written on. All that's said. And you're like, well, shit. Like, you could have, yeah, you could have just said no. Yeah, and Nagiko takes that to mean that literally the paper that she sent them was the wrong kind, to which I thought, <laughs> that's not, that isn't what matters to the publishing company. It's not as if they're going to use the exact same paper to send it out uh, to the presses or anything like that. They'll choose better paper if they need it. They just literally do not like your writing at the moment. That's cool. Anyone who's worked in writing or tried to get something published, that's part of the process. It's okay. But Nagiko, she doesn't care for that. She doesn't care for this rejection. It's pretty baller that she does take it in like the opposite way where it's like, it's not worth the paper it's written on. I mean, the paper's not good enough for my prose. Yeah. <laughs> well, I shall have to find a better paper. And she's a little salty about it. Nagiko goes to the publisher again. There's a really cool split screen thing going on that we're seeing like the lower part of the screen in a smaller frame is present time. But the larger part of the screen that's on the upper half of the screen is the past. And it's the same shot that we saw before when Nagiko went to the publisher and saw her father coming out of the publisher's office. We realize we're in the same place. And this time... Who comes out of the publisher's office? This time, Ewan McGregor pops out with a cheeky little smile, giving the publisher, like, he's knocking him a little kiss on the cheek, uh -huh. and the yeah. publisher is going to kind of, like, readjust his junk a little bit, and you're like, oh, they fucking like, <laughs> score. Just immediately, like, both do well oh. for each other. And, yeah, but, like, the split screen for a second, because, yeah, I do want to talk about, like, you know, Ewan McGregor fucking, but... <laughs> It's cool in this way where, like, so when we talk about, we've talked about, like, Brian De Palma's split screen style mm -hmm. being very much one to often do that vertical split screen. And that's 
I think a little bit more common is that vertical split screen. I haven't seen as many horizontal split screens happening, mm -hmm. but whereas De Palma generally uses it to show simultaneous action or two things that are kind of related to each other, but mostly simultaneous action, mm -hmm. this is going to be across time and space. Mm -hmm. And that's really cool to just kind of like parallel those shots. So we are actually, instead of flipping back and forth to like some sort of flashback we're actually just getting the literal parallel shots happening in just this literal formalism thing that's happening because he's putting them parallel to each other mm -hmm. and that's where when we talk about greenaway's formalism right like that's where it's coming in is he's showing parallel action by actually physically making it parallel action yeah and cool. it's i kept saying split screen like as we've said and i always wrote that in my notes but in a way, it isn't technically a split screen in the literal sense. It's a superimposed shot on top of another. The shot of the past is larger than the shot of the future. The shot of the future is on top of the screen, but it isn't completely sharing the screen with this other shot on a one-to-one on -one ratio. It's really weird, and it's not something that you see terribly often. Yeah, because the past still dominates, uh, you know? There you go. So... Then, yeah, then we're going to find out that, like, you and the publisher, they fucking. And Nagika is going to follow Ewan slash Jerome. I guess his name's Jerome in this. Yes. she. There's a lot of attention given to her writing down the license plate of the car that he drives, even though that doesn't figure in at all to her following him, I don't think. Yeah, because she wants to write numbers and letters that are associated with him on her skin. She's interested in him now, and so... It's a, a fetishistic kind of like ritualized, okay, I'll, I'll rate part of you on me. She calls her stalker who has the van a little down the street and they follow Ewan and follow him to this restaurant that's beautiful fucking restaurant. Yeah, this really cool French song starts playing and the subtitles to it are built in. So they're not really subtitles because they are spelling out the lyrics to the song that are scrolling in these like kind of cool font from left to right across the screen. And that comes a little bit cool too because that's generally not or sorry no it comes from right to left across the screen actually mm -hmm. and that's kind of interesting because we're usually used to reading French in left to right so we're getting that kind of inverse we're getting it in the way that you generally actually read most Asian languages mm -hmm. directionally and so that's another cool like weird little like blend of language and cultural mixing and it's a very sultry song. Mm -hmm. It's a very cool song choice. But we are calling attention here once again to like, as this very sexual, sultry, seductive songs playing, we're calling attention to the verbal written components, mm -hmm. like the verbal and written components of it. So sexualizing that linguistic moment here a little bit. And they're going to have like a buck fest, basically. <laughs> we're going to get these really cool shots of her just lying in bed in the shadows and the calligraphy is going to be this light cast across oh, her body that's spilling so over sexy. her like they're like venetian blinds in a film noir mm -hmm. but like the calligraphy light edition so that cool. are just kind of <laughs> spattered across her body in the bed and that's a very cool shot we're gonna get her practicing her writing on jerome's body and different types of languages and different types of fonts. We're even going to get, at one point, the quick brown fox jumps over the lazy dog, like, written across <laughs> Jerome's back, I noticed, which is kind of fun. 
And then, yeah, just all these superimposed shots, like a lot of overlays of text over like the actual image. Mm -hmm. So it's clear that those weren't written on them at the time, but this like superimposition of text after the fact, but then other times it's going to be written on the body. We're going to get the Lord's Prayer in a couple different languages, like across her body. Strange. And was that something in Latin on her lower half? Yeah, it's the Lord's Prayer in Latin. Okay, that makes sense. Yes. Yeah, so it was just like the Lord's Prayer in different translations in her body, which kind of goes back against like the Japanese creation myth and stuff. So like it seems like they're just kind of exploring a lot of different types of spiritual phrases and sayings and prayers across the board writing them on their body in this like very cool not quite sacrilegious way but because the fetish is often sexual as much as it's sublime and so this taking what for other people might be like a sublime spiritual kind of expression and like turning it into kind of like a sexualized one is a very fetishistic thing to do. Mm-hmm. I approve of it. So, yeah, it's kind of like, well, whatever the spirituality of this comes from, let's play with this. Let's let's put it on the body. I mean, I admit the Lord's Prayer would not have been the first thing I would have thought of to write, but hey, whatever works. It's uh, your body, your ink, your choice. Yeah, there is something kind of fetishistically hot about the Lord's Prayer, especially in Latin, when it's done in a fetishistic way. <laughs> There's that German band that has the Lord's Prayer and this like super cool like metal techno thing. This kind of gothicism to it. So like, I get it. Mm -hmm. I totally get it. Sure, sure. Yes, so Nagiko has since gotten herself her own attendant. So in the way that the, the Nagiko of the past was an attendant, she in the present, so the actual historical one, right, was an attendant, She's going to get the modern-day equivalent of an attendant herself in this maid that Mm -hmm. is going to just be cleaning and taking care of stuff in the background of this fuckfest. So, like, they're lounging around, writing on each other's bodies while this poor maid in a maid's uniform is going to be, like, doing the dishes and Mm -hmm. doing their laundry. And then at one point, they're going to be in, like, this bathtub. Beautiful bathtub. uh... Yeah, they're kind of, like, fucking and washing off the calligraphy in the bathtub. This maid is going to be in the background with a little spinning plate, and she's going to be singing. And at first, this is just this, like, bizarre, crazy choice. And then Ewan McGregor actually turns to her and is like, shut up, stop singing. And you're like, wait, you can see her? So diegetically, this woman is back there spinning a plate and singing while you guys fuck in the tub. Yeah. Okay. 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 Amazing. I'm so, down. So, like, yeah, I guess she's just, like, providing some ambiance. I mean, it does have this very court feel, right? This performance, this almost, like, jester type of thing just in the background. So I don't know if this is an allusion to a specific moment of sorts in the pillow book, but it seems like it might be. And, uh, yeah, but they, they don't give a fuck. They're just doing their little thing. Mm-hmm. And then at the end of their fuckfest, Nagika makes an announcement. I want to honor my father by becoming a writer. Yeah. And Ewan, Jerome, wants to help her out, and he says, I'll help you out. I'll learn more languages so that everyone in the world can understand you, which surprised me. I thought, Ewan, you speak like six languages already, man. You good. Yeah, it's like, translators of texts generally differ by what they're being translated into, but no, there's something like 
deeply romantic about that in terms of, yes, I will learn all of the languages because this is what is important to you. It's like language, like this is our thing, is that you will create these words and I will translate them. Because he seems to have a fetish for languages in mm -hmm. his own way, right? And that's in translating them. And for her, it's in writing them. So they share this obsession. And that's also... Aside from fetishism or hand in hand with fetishism, what's happening here is it's a tale about a certain form of singular obsession. And they both have this singular obsession. Well, kind of dual obsession with like sex and language, mm -hmm. which to them, I guess, is one and the same. So whatever. Hell yeah. And then she gets really excited. Yeah. Beautiful shot of her in a tiny bath. She's just in a tiny bath. It's this giant basin of water or whatever you want to call it. That he's bathing her in while this is all going on. I just thought, yeah, and God. it's front of the shelf of book. That is hot, man. We've already seen a different bathtub that they've taken a bath in. So basically, this entire apartment is just calligraphy stuff, books, and bathtubs. Like it's a mood. And at some point, like that's when she like stands up out of the bath and is like, "I want to be a writer." And so she gets really excited and touched by the fact that you and wants you and Jerome wants to translate all of her works so that they can be heard and touch everyone. And then she hands him the calligraphy pen like she did her first husband. But instead of her first husband being like, nah, fuck this writing stuff, Ewan is willingly and happily going to start repeating mm -hmm. the poem, the myth creation, yeah. the painting of the person into mm -hmm. existence, which is pretty cool. But it's even cooler because we actually get a picture in picture overlay of that same shot from the opening of when she was little. So once again, instead of taking the time to flash back to this opening scene, we're going to take just a little sort of square and we're going to carve it out of our main frame and we're just going to have that little interplay, simultaneous action of when she was a child getting this done. And they are going to choreograph time it so that Ewan's movements, Ewan Jerome's movements are happening at the same time as the fathers in the flashback, um, or not flashback, in the picture inlay, mm -hmm. in the past. So kind of like when she was waiting at the publishers and we get this past versus present kind of thing, this is actually going to be the same thing, but it's going to be done in a completely different style of picture in picture instead of horizontal split screen. It gets a little heavy handed. However, when we're going to show a picture of the father, cut to just like the full on close-up shot of the father in the past frame and Jerome saying, and the sex, <laughs> dot, 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 dot. And so it's like, whoa, okay, like we get it. Uh-huh, yeah. <laughs> this, is, this is some daddy issue stuff. It's a heavy-handed moment, like, but it also works because of the really beautiful choreography. Jerome, she knows you're DTF, bro. You're good. <laughs> Chill out. He's going to do it. After this curious use of the picture in picture which really works like yeah. it's an interesting film technique they, that i have not really seen done before but it's like mm, totally effective yeah. they have breakfast in a scene that is really the most traditionally shot of the entire film that's about plot and it's just locked shots re shot reverse shot them just having breakfast and jerome says i don't get why you want to work with this publisher so much but fine whatever how about you write on me and send me in there well, then he does get it. He's like, oh, wait, this is the publisher that rejected you, right? It just really bothers you that this is the only man to have ever quickly said no to you. And she's like, there might be a little truth there. Oh. Also, apparently, he this is used the guy to blackmail that my father, but I'm not going to share that with you yet. Yeah. Also, audience still confused as to how that was a thing. But fine. <laughs> 
So he's going to be like, okay, well, it so happens that I could perhaps help you out with this. Why don't you write on me? Use my body as the pages of your book. And I'll go show him my body because you know what? He likes my body. And she's like, yeah, it sounds like a true sacrifice, but not without pleasure for you. And then, well, you and Jerome's like, perhaps. And then he's like, you could be jealous. Like, this is going to be like a little turn on thing, right? They're uh, going to do a little cuckolding. It's going to be fun. Sure, yeah. And so she's like, fine. She seems on board with this. Mm-hmm. So she shaves him down and she lays him out. And we get this really great object of the body again. And this movie is going to be very cool in the way that it equally subjects this concept of the quote-unquote male gaze. We're going to kind of neutralize the male gaze a little bit because we're going to get lots of shots of bodies, but they're going to be bodies across the board, and we're going to get a lot of male bodies. And Ewan is going to really frontline that here for us as he just lays himself out on a table as an offering of parchment. And she's going to write her little book on him, and he's going to go to the publisher, and there's just going to be this amazing reveal shot when he like goes to the publisher and he strips all of his stuff down. He's just standing there in this foyer of the publisher's shop, totally naked, covered in calligraphy, with his arms open and offering, with his like little hips cocked and looking like, yeah, what's up? Superimpose over it just this title card of the first book of 13. <laughs> and you're like, whoa, <laughs> we're like an hour and 20 minutes into the movie and like it's making it feel like the movie has started (laughs) like now now we're going now this movie is getting into it this is really gonna turn on our publisher he's like this is a fucking magnificent work of art he's gonna call in his little scribes they're gonna like write it down write down the the reading after like he reads his body right he's gonna read his body like a text they do not at all react to the fact that he wants them to copy down this the text on this nude man standing in the middle of the the room that's what i meant earlier on like no one ever is shocked by things happening in this film yes because we've got this naturalization of this idea of the body as text so then they're gonna have a fuck fest because like this is a super turn on for this publisher he's got this really gorgeous body covered in text and yeah so they're gonna start fucking and then nagiko is like waiting outside mm-hmm. and so jerome's gonna come out with the publisher and they're like gonna go to dinner or something and she's like bitch are you gonna come back here he's like yeah we're not done with our fuck fest though so why don't you go home why don't you take a bath why don't you just think about me and uh, i'll be back later tonight she's getting a little little miffed time passes and they're still having their fuck fest and at some point, she's going to go and try to search for him. Basically, like, search him out. And there's going to be a near simultaneous split block action sequence, but not really, because <laughs> they're going to be fucking, and she's going to be, like, searching for him. So that's sort of simultaneous. But then it's going to have different shots of her searching in different places. And so it's basically just speeding up the search in split screen. Mm-hmm. And that's another, like, kind of cool thing. We really want to dwell on the parts we want to dwell on, but like her searching is not one of them. We just want to show time passing through this horizontal split. She's going to come upon them. And like this chick really needs to chill, right? Like she's just... I thought, look, Nagiko, you know what you signed up for here. You knew what was going to happen. Why are you so shocked by this? Yeah, because even when they run into each other on the way out first, when she's like, 
you're experiencing a little too much pleasure, right? And he's like, with your permission, right? Like, he reminds her, like, hey, you told me I go fuck this dude. Plus, like, they were already fucking first, yeah. to be fair. Like, him and the publisher had been already pre-established. So, chick needs to chill. If anything, the publisher should be jealous of Nagiko. So, Exactly, yeah. exactly. So, it's kind of like, all right. And clearly, like, Ewan can do both, right? Like, he's got the time. He seems to have equal levels of attraction. So this is not detracting from what you have. Like, it's chill. She's still going to have, like, a freak out about it anyway. Meanwhile, while she finds them fucking or whatever, like, Jerome is still covered in this text. Like, perfectly covered in this text. Mm -hmm. Has Jerome not showered yet? Because we've already established quite a few times that, like, getting in a shower or a bathtub washes this ink off. I'm sure the publisher, he was, he's like, I, I can shower first. The publisher's like, no, 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 no. You leave that sweet lettering on your body. So, if anything, <laughs> Nagiko is involved here, you know, in a, in a way. No, 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 no. Not that, like, they wouldn't fuck with it written on him, because that's clear that's part of the turn-on, but it seems like multiple days possibly have passed, oh. and that they've been having this fuck fest. Uh, so, like, oh. has he not showered Ew. in multiple days? Does he not sweat when he has sex? Oh. Do bodily fluids not come into this equation like he's just has this perfectly pristine text on his body and i'm like how you know buddy, how? the scary thing is questions. the answer to all those questions is probably yes and we're still here yeah so like oh. that's i think it's just important to point out he hasn't showered in like three days that is nasty well, during this fuck fest and, and that's this, that adds a little something to it to me you know this causes nagiko to uh kind of have literary adultery going on because she recruits two blonde guys to be the second and third books that she sends to the publisher. And also a third guy. Yeah, so we're going to get just like a whole bunch of books. Because she has said that there's going to be 13 of them. Mm -hmm. And the different books are going to just kind of symbolize different stuff. So she's going to recruit these two pretty dumb boys to be the book of the innocent and the book of the idiot. And she's going to send them simultaneously. And they're super bleached out, too. Mm -hmm. They've got like really bleached hair to the point where it's almost white. I assume they're Swedish. And then the fourth book, the Book of Impotence, is going to go running through the street, all diapered up or whatever. Older man in a diaper, yeah. Then we get to, like, the aforementioned dude at the beginning, the the fifth book, The Exhibitionist. This guy, wow, wow, this guy's weird. He's this, this really chubby guy. He's getting a bath. By I think he's being bathed by Nagiko's the stalker. stalker, the stalker, and for whatever reason, just hops up, stands up in the bathtub, and starts doing the hokey pokey. Like tells him, "Hey, you know, in America, we got a song about you guys. We call it the hokey pokey. Come on, you do the hokey pokey." And I'm like, "Is I don't know. That's not what the hokey pokey is about. I'm not too sure what it is you're referring to." Nagiko comes in and rips away his towel and says, "I hear Americans have nothing to hide, and I guess it's true." like whoa okay just insulting this guy in his dick which is not terribly visible i have to admit yeah you get the sense that greenaway has some feelings about americans yeah he's got some feelings which is totally fine yeah, you know, to fair enough. have some feelings about americans i'm with you but the problem here i think is it totally does not fit with the film. They have this guy be just so loud and so brash. It really just cuts into this really cool languid thing that's been going mm-hmm. on throughout most of the movies. And I don't know if it's this guy's performance, but like part of that's going to be like the director. Yeah. We just needed to pull it back a little bit, rein this in a bit. I would be fascinated to watch some behind the scenes footage and see what exactly Paul Greenaway's 
approach to directing is? Does he guide the actors through a performance, just let them do their thing, kind of take a Hitchcockian approach to things and like only come to the actor if they're doing something wrong? I, I would like to know like what he does to get this performance out of this guy. Because after Nagako, yes, rips away this guy's towels, tells him he has a small dick, we then cut to the printers in the publisher's house or the publishing office and this guy is now running around the place with writing all over him harassing the publisher's assistants one of them just jack slaps him really hard and he goes down and is just knocked out by this and they realize he has the writing all over him the publisher comes in looks at him and says oh my god it's another book write this shit down and jerome is with him and jerome seems really upset yeah, now Jerome is jealous. Yeah. But it also is like, it's another questionable drug moment, too. Where this guy is now clearly drugged and passed out. How and why? Yeah. <laughs> where did this magical, like, pass out thing come in? So, yeah, it's questionable. But Jerome is now jealous, and he's going to go on this return to Nagiko because he realizes, oh, wait, I've been kind of, like, bucking this dude here yeah. for a while. I kind of forgot about her. My bad. So he goes back and he's just like pounding on the door Nordica! to Nagiko's place, Nordica! like just crying. And this is actually now a type of yelling that actually does totally fit back in with the movie because it's mm. actually full of something that feels very real. It feels mm. very raw. There's something actually kind of erotic about it as well because he's sobbing. That might just be me, but yeah, I find it does have a guys cry. Kind of a streetcar named Desire Stella cry thing going on. A little bit. Yeah, I mean, but we don't get to see him, right? So that's Mm -hmm. another thing that going back to the pillow book and sound oversight, that we are going to get this once again De Profundis voice work coming from the knocking of the door, the rattling of the door, the shouts, the raw shouts of Ewan's voice, but we're not going to see him. We're not going to see his anguish. We're only going to hear it. Super cool sound-based choice. And Nagiko, meanwhile, is not going to say anything, but she's going to be kind of like crying on the other side of the door because she's still upset. And I'm like, guys, you can work this out. Like, this does not have to be a big (laughs) melodramatic deal. Just talk about it, right? Like, you guys are adults. Just, like, figure shit out. But no. Instead of doing the mature thing and just being like, so what's up it seems like you might have some needs and you like to fuck multiple people let's see if that's compatible all right polygot let's get polyamorous here you know let's what what, what can we do (laughs) instead jerome is gonna go talk to nagiko's stalker because the stalker's just always there Mm because he's a stalker he likes to hang out and he's like what should i do man and the stalker's like okay so you should totally pretend to kill yourself (laughs) that would be hot (laughs) What's crazy here is that one thing the stalker reveals that made me shiver a little bit was he explained that before she writes on someone, Nagiko shaves them and so that they're hairless, but then also washes their bodies with lemon juice to make their skin soft. Washing somebody with lemon juice after you shave them is kind of terrifying. That's fucking great. That's a horrific sensation to try to imagine. Not not for all of us. Dick move, Nagiko. So, I'm sorry. Dick move. No, a subjective move, right? Because <laughs> we've got a little sadomasochism coming in, and that is... That's just your general basic fetishism 101. There's a lot of, like, you're going to find that a lot. You don't have to be a sadomasochist to be a fetishist, but 
it's quite popular. So yeah, like if anything, that seems like it's a fun time to play with a little citrus. It also relates to parchment in general. So the difference between paper and parchment is parchment's actually made out of skin. So how we used to get parchment is you would skin animals, get hides. Vellum is going to be another form of parchment, but of like younger animals. And you soak it for a decent amount of time first, generally in a type of solution that I think, if I remember correctly, included a lot of lime, maybe. I'm not an expert mm. parchment maker, but I think you soak it into some stuff that will take the hair out of it as well as soften it up a little bit before you stretch it really thin. So if anything, she's treating the skin like you would treat parchment. You're getting rid of the hair and you are conditioning it in some way. So this is her Fair having enough, that but skin still, versus paper type of thing. Still, fucking ouch, man. <laughs> Yeah, the, the sensation's great. It's great. Okay, fair enough. But the way that the stalker gets to Jerome should kill himself is really weird. He says, well, you are a writer. You must think like Shakespeare and Romeo and Juliet, and then hands him bags of pills to take. Yeah, this guy is walking around with an entire pharmacy in his purse. Why do you carry that amount of drugs on you on just like the daily, man? Like, what is happening here? She's like three bottles and then like, a baggie full of pills. Once again, also, why does everybody think this like dude's a writer? Like he's a translator, <laughs> different stuff. <laughs> but he's like, okay, if you want to impress her, right? Like do the Romeo and Juliet thing, like pretend to kill yourself. And he's like, okay, so that's super melodramatic, man. And then the camera like zooms in on him and he's clearly thinking about it. And he's like, yeah, but I'm definitely that dramatic. Yeah. I'm going to do it. Cut to Nagiko's place. And he walks around and is taking a lot of the pills over and over again. There's a lot of split screen going on here, showing us what he's doing throughout the apartment. He's taking the pills. He's drinking ink. He's getting his dick out because, you know, he hasn't done that enough yet in the movie. Go figure. He hasn't. I swear one of the shots is of him standing up on the bed with a robe on, like just opening the robe as if to say, yeah, look at my dick. Which, again, if I were Ewan McGregor and I looked like that, I I can't blame him. I have a lot of respect, especially for, like, the 90s cinema and earlier, of, like, men who will just go full frontal. Mm Because that was not as common, because the film world is a little bit of a misogynistic industry that likes to show women's bodies a lot more than, like, show men's bodies. And so this was, like, this was important, Mm -hmm. you know? And he's, he's bringing it. And yeah, so he's just going to draw out, and this like scene is just going to draw out this fake suicide that actually ends up being a real suicide. <laughs> he just keeps downing pills, and you're like, slow down, bro. But uh... <laughs> no, at some point, he is going to take enough, and he's going to be writing all over the surfaces of everything as he's going about shoving stuff down his throat. And then he's going to lay down on the bed, and he's going to open Nagiko's copy of the pillow book, the historical pillow book, mm-hmm. translation of the historical pillow book. And he's just going to die on her bed with this pillow book just tenting over his junk. Mm-hmm. His genitals, as it were. Yes. Form a little, a little tent house for his genitals. And then she's going to come home and she's going to find and paint his corpse. But she's not going to realize he's dead right away. <laughs> 
she really is hyper-focused on his body because she comes in she's like okay I'm so sorry I overreacted and you're like probably should have come to that conclusion like 48 hours ago hey, but whatever. Babe, my B I'm gonna write on you now it's all yeah, cool she, she starts writing on him so she starts like initiating this sexual act and it's gonna take her a while to notice that he's dead because the body is first and foremost what she notices because you know she's this type of fetishist and we have clearly at this point established that this writing is a ritual sexual act Mm -hmm. for them. And so this totally counts as corpse fucking, is Uh, like all I'm saying. There's some corpse fucking there. It's probably then appropriate that she notices he's dead because ink is now coming out of his mouth that he drank earlier, which has gone from black to gray. Yeah, like maybe... uh, She like kind of touches him, the face kind of falls, this ink just spills out of his mouth and down his neck. And yes, the collapse of the body and text and writing, like, like all in this moment becomes very cool. What was external now becomes internal. And yeah, it's a whole thing. Mm-hmm. And she's going to get into this fetal position in this round little bathtub. In the tiny like little bathtub. Another oh. really cool shot, just like an overhead shot of her in this bathtub. And then a branding iron is in another superimposed. I found that fascinating. She, yeah, this beautiful shot of her in the tiny little bathtub. And then a small video is now superimposed on top of that with a branding iron coming down on, I think, a metallic surface something. And it we get that sizzling sound. And then cut to a little private funeral for Jerome. Yeah, so Jerome's going to have a little funeral. He's going to be buried there in Hong Kong. And his mother or aunt or something, like some old woman is going to show up and say to Nagiko, yeah, Jerome always liked what was fashionable. She seems like this kind of racist old little like oh, British woman or yeah. something who's like, yeah, so my son has always liked what's fashionable. I don't know why he's always liked these Asian languages, but he... He likes things that are in fashion, so that's probably why he was fucking you. Mm-hmm. And she's going to, like, slap this old lady. Yeah. And it's going to be a little awkward because they're both to the same side of the car. Yeah. And it's not a very hard slap, so it's not very <laughs> successful. But, like, this woman looks a little affronted by it anyway. Oh, so it's like, all right, well, that happened. She's going to burn down the place because their place mm-hmm. has this beautiful old armoire that's just stuffed with basically the equivalent of a calligrapher's sex dungeon Mm. where you have all of these great notebooks and ink and parchment and calligraphy pens and all like the book collection and stuff it gets featured quite prominently right like they're always gonna fuck in front of it and they're gonna like fuck on like pieces of paper like crumpled up pieces of paper with calligraphy on them and stuff so like this is an important part of their sex life fair enough and She's going to set that shit on fire because once again, she's like, okay, when I want to like salt and burn a chapter in my life, like I'm going to fucking salt and burn that chapter of my life. <laughs> this bitch wants to see the world burn. Watch the world burn. And so she's going to like just set that place on fire. And I'm like, okay, I hope like I know that you're a high price like fashion model and stuff. So you probably have funds, but there are not that many pieces of property in Hong Kong that aren't touching anybody else's pieces of yeah. property. So like, did you just burn down a fucking building? This is not an isolated <laughs> Woman, area. Uncool. You're going to burn lady. You are going to fuck up someone else's life doing this. Especially since it seems like their place is kind of like an apartment or condo or something. So yeah, I think she just like burned down an apartment building. So it's, whoa, dick move. But she's grieving. So she has to go back to Japan because she needs to close this particular chapter of her life. Meanwhile, We're digging up Jerome. 
Stalker is gonna be like, hey, yeah. I gotta go to this publisher. You know this dude named Jerome, right? And the publisher's mm-hmm. like, yeah, I know Jerome. And he's like, so he's dead. What? And the publisher's gonna be like, what? This is super sad. And he hires all of his little, like, workers. I don't know. Somehow he's got these henchmen on speed dial that yeah. will grave rob for him. And, yeah, and they're down to grave rob, uh, clearly. I respect that loyalty. Uh-huh. This is all I'm saying. They, and uh, so we get this shot of the grave robbing. Mm-hmm. It's an easier time of grave robbing since he's interned in this stone structure. That's sure. like, it's like a stone graveyard. It's definitely not conspicuous, though. There's a lot of guys crowd around this thing, and not at the pitch of night, either. It seems like it's dusk when they're doing this, so yeah. you'd think like, someone would notice this. How many guys does it take to rob a grave at the cemetery? Because there's a lot of them. Seven. It takes seven of them. <laughs> <laughs> they pulled his body out, they bring it to him, and he has this whole little like system set up in his publishing basement, I guess. It's actually kind of a gorgeous shot where they bring this muslin-wrapped body to him, lay it out on this steel table, and they unwrap the cloth, and it's Ewan McGregor hanging out in there with all of his dead corpse makeup on. It's a pretty good corpse makeup job. And then we get this rehash of the everything that is indigo is splendid. Yeah. Over this corpse, as the camera's kind of sprawling down his body, because it's still covered in the text that Nagiko painted on him when she was, you know, doing her corpse fucking yeah. thing. Like, yeah, it was this callback to this indigo corpse. And it's like, is everything that's indigo splendid? Yeah, yeah, it still is, because there's something that's kind of great about this shot and this body. And the publisher thinks so, too. And so the publisher is going to start the process of just skinning his lover so that he can process the skin and turn it into a book a pillow book of his own oh boy yeah and this is not going to be entirely as far as i can tell scientifically accurate because in order to make skin i mean you can make book pages out of skin Mm -hmm. that's what parchment is as we discussed i just think that the end result we see might not be feasible well the problem is really is like the process of preserving the ink while you're doing it. In order to get the skin to become parchment, they do, I mean, part of it is very accurate because they're like doing the flaying and then they have kind of that scraping that they do Mm -hmm. and they are going to like stretch it out on the racks and stuff and stretch it very thin. So it's up to a point. Um, So like turning the skin in that way is actually very feasible. It's preserving the text that's on his body in the way that they do. Because generally Mm. you do have to soak this stuff. Like he's already dehaired and the text is already on him, but... In terms of the soaking stuff that you need to then stretch the skin out, I think that would take the ink out of the skin a little bit. And then stretching it as wide and as thin as you do, you would have these giant letters left. So there's a little suspension of disbelief. But, like, he is going to make a a book out of Jerome's skin. This is the one part I remembered, like, the plot point Uh, from the movie I remembered. And I was like, okay, so, like, there's one thing I remember, and it's that Ewan McGregor's character gets turned into a book. Because, like, that's hard to forget, you know? So he gets turned into a book, and this guy... After he has his little book, right, he's going to, like, sit with it in bed, and he's going to smell it. And we're going to have Nagiko earlier say this thing about scent, that paper smells like skin. So mm-hmm. we already have that set up. But he's going to, like, inhale, and he's going to lay it over his body. And He's rubbing his dick on it. I mean, that's happening. Maybe this is not the way that, like, everyone would grieve. But, you know, like, everybody grieves in their own way. We all have our you know? processes. This is, this is just his way. Like, this is fine. But... This chick... She's going to work on her next, uh, I guess, seven books, because Book of the Lovers was the sixth book. So now Nagiko gets to working on 
the remaining uh, chapters of this 13-book anthology that she's doing. Yeah. We're going to get the Book of the Seducer is the seventh book. It's going to be, like, this hot dude that shows up at the publisher's house, but he's left out in the rain, and so, like, the text is starting to run down his body, and the messenger is like, well, I guess all you have left is the messenger, and then, like, the publisher kind of looks at him, and he's like, okay, you're pretty hot, I can work with that. And so he's going to shut the door, you know, fade to black. Then we're going to get the eighth book of the youth. Which is awesome because it's a bunch of Polaroids of a guy who has the words written on him, and, you know, Polaroids? Fuck yeah, that's sexy, man. Also true. And then we're going to get the Book of Secrets. So that's going to be just like pieces of the body that are not generally written on. So the guy's going to close his eyes and it's going to say on it, like, closed eyes cannot read. And then it's going to have on his hand between his fingers, a hand cannot write on itself. So all of these little sayings almost, these little philosophical quips. There's a cute moment where the publisher goes to slap the guy and the guy just does a full kind of cartwheel away from him to avoid being slapped and then cartwheels back so the guy can look at more parts of his body that yeah that are like on his like inner thighs and stuff so the book of secrets are like the places that aren't generally written on like the back of the ears and stuff we're gonna get the book of silence like that's just text written on this one dude's tongue and then book of false starts is gonna be like this one dude that got it written on his body and he's about to drive by or he's driving by the publishers and he pauses for a second and then he keeps on going and you're like all right so the Book of False Starts works for the movie because we see it, yeah. but like, it doesn't really mean anything when nobody diegetically sees it. I mean, fine. I'm kind of confused by the 11th book of The Betrayed because the publisher sees it when it's on a guy who gets hit by a car in a car wreck, and he was on the sidewalk. His dead body is there, and that's where all the writing is on. How did Nagiko work that one out? Did she write on this guy, and then the car hit him? And she arranged it. I Nagako has got some vehicular yeah, manslaughter I don't know, going. Man. I don't know. I'm just saying. Some of these are a little weak. You know? Yeah, the, the, especially that false starts one. I'm like, you weren't even trying with that one, Nagiko. Come on. But these do all seem cool as this body is text exercise. Yeah. And it's all an attempt from Nagiko to get the pillow book that was made from Jerome's flesh back to her, which the publisher is like, no, I'm not parting with this thing. You're not going to get that from me. Until the 13th book arrives, the Book of the Dead. And this guy's going to come, and apparently written on this dude's flesh is all of the sins of the publisher. And it's going to culminate in this, you've lived your life long enough, like you've desecrated the body of my lover, and that's unforgivable. I'm like, okay, once again... Jerome is this dude's lover too, Mm -hmm. bitch. And he was actually this dude's lover first. So you don't have any more claims over Jerome's body than this guy does. Like, Jerome was his own person. He did not give or submit his body to either of you over the other. Yeah. You also corpse fucked him. Like, get off your high horse, bitch. Because, like, corpse fucking is happening all around here. And it also is, like, weird that in this world in which we are really going to naturalize this certain form of fetishism in terms of the writing and using the body as object and text, that she draws the line at a different place than the publisher draws the line, right? Because he's just extending the metaphor as body Mm -hmm. as text and object. And suddenly she's going to kink shame him as this unforgivable, heinous act 
When it's like, well, you didn't kill him, right? Like, it's not that he took away somebody's autonomy. He's just continuing this tradition that they, all three of them seem to be super into. Because, like, all three of them were very compatible in the way that they seem to have this singular obsession with the word and the sexual pleasure of Mm -hmm. words in a way that most people don't. So... They should get each other, really. So, yeah, it's this, like, weird demonizing here that's happening in this moment. These three could have had an awesome polyamorous V-style relationship where, you know, Jerome is the apex of that. It could have worked out, but... I, not in yeah, this it could have been fine. And, like, you could let the dude keep his book, right? Like, he's, mm. it's not hurting anybody. <laughs> don't, don't shame this dude. We'll grieve in our own ways. Yeah, if you anything, know? he this should keep it because he made it happen. I don't recall Nagiko putting any work into flaying Jerome's corpse. Yeah, it's like, what, what gives you the right to have this book? I don't know. Yeah, if there's something that really, really bugs me here in... Yes, just this, like, moral superiority card that she's mm-hmm. playing, as well as this feeling that she seems to have that somehow her relationship with Jerome is more legitimate and more important or something. Because it's like, you don't know them or their life. They had just as long of a fuck fest and like, yeah. we did not really get to see their story. So like, I don't know. But Jerome looked pretty happy about fucking him. Yeah. The first time we saw him. So but despite all of our objections here, the words that are written on this man's ass are very compelling to the publisher. So he goes to his little case, his little wooden box. He gets out the pillow book, gives it one last good sniff, uh, rubs it all over his body, and then approaches this large man who is in his room. The large man takes a shaving razor out of his hair, opens it up. The publisher just nods and he gets sliced across the throat really hard and goes down. And that's the end of the publisher. He gives out real easy. It's like, if this dude is power-hungry monster that you paint him to be, generally one does not give up, you know, like, Mm -hmm. that power in life just by reading, yeah, you should kill yourself, though. What's actually strange about the order of all this is the way that we get this information, because this large man takes off his clothes, the publisher looks him over to see the writing, but then starts reading out loud in unsubtitled Japanese what is on this man's body, then gets the book, sniffs it, puts it down, gets sliced, dies, and then we pan down to this naked man's ass where the writing is, and then we get an English narration by Nagiko of what the publisher was reading. So if you speak both Japanese and English, this has to be really redundant. I don't know. Yeah, it's like, it's a very curious thing, and it's also, once again, reading away, really not caring about the narrative sense mm-hmm. of anything yeah. more than like just like the structure in which it is revealed. And this is also going to be a big moment where we get a lot of Greenaway themes coming in that are beyond the object and like text stuff, because he tends to really like this idea of death and love and sacrifice and vengeance. Mm -hmm. So there are two films that he has that are also really fun. Drowning by Numbers is going to be one of them. And then The Cook, The Thief, His Wife, and Her Lover hmm. is going to be oh, another. Yeah, These both came out prior to Pillow Book. So he'd already established himself as like this kind of guy. Because The Cook, The Thief, His Wife, and Her Lover is going to have very similar themes of multiple people getting involved in a relationship where some people are more on board than others. And this one woman's going to start fucking this dude and her husband is going to find out about it. And at some point, he's going to track this guy down who happens to be a bookshop owner. And he's going to kill him by forcing him to eat pages of a book. Oh. That's going to kill him. And then the woman is going to find out about this, get super pissed about it. 
So she's going to flay and cut up her lover that has died by book and turn him into a stew. And then she's going to force feed it to her husband that killed him. And then she's going to accuse him of cannibalism and shoot him or execute him for it. And you're like, whoa. Well, they were diehard <laughs> vegans prior to that. So not, justice not had so to be served. But so this very strange interplay that Greenaway often has about this concept of vengeance and this like weird circuitous route that vengeance takes in his films where you're does this act really justify this one? Or where do we draw the lines of certain taboos? Who's kind of at fault here? And is everybody just monstrous and going overboard? Or did this need to happen at all? Like, tends to be questions that are asked in a lot of his films, but he does seem to really like to dice up, flay, and cannibalize things. It's a very Titus Andronicus form of vengeance, oh, I suppose. Yeah, best Anthony Hopkins movie ever. <laughs> It is, actually, yes. <laughs> well, I love that movie. At her parents, Nagiko puts the books away. Underneath a bonsai tree, I believe. It's I'm not too sure which books these are. Maybe she's transcribed everything that she's written down on the bodies. But she is now placing the books in the small little pot and a little bonsai tree. No, is this gonna... is actually Jerome's book. So this oh. is Jerome's skin. So she gets it back. So yeah, like, so the I guy brings did. it back to her. And she's going to bury it. She has multiple books that she puts in there. Yeah, it might be like that chapter of her life and her own pillow book, but she also puts Jerome's pillow book under the sponsor yeah, tree. Yeah, I figured. She's burying it or whatever. And mm. once again, it's like, bitch, what gives you the right to keep this book over like this other dude? <laughs> I was like, you lost me. You it lost belongs me. in a museum. I'm all for No, it belongs with like the person who put in the work to fucking flay him. Like, I don't know. <laughs> so, yeah, it's like, bitch, you were not special. Like, you were not special compared to like, the publisher. We're going to have this ending where like, she prior to Jerome's death and flaying, had become pregnant. And so she is going to give birth to Jerome's child. And she is burying, not really burying, she's more just like potting this pillow book chapter of her life and Jerome's under this bonsai tree. And she even mentions, she's like, yes, I'm now 28. So this is her 28th birthday. She's like, mm -hmm. I now have enough to write my own pillow book. I was like, you have a bit more than that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> most, most pillow books are just this. We've got like this journal diary of these are things that bring great joy. Or, this is, you know, like what I observed that the women wear per court. You, you have a little bit more than your average pillow book. Yeah. You could write like some really fucked up HBO series. But... <laughs> She is going to, yeah, like, end nursing her child and then drawing on the face of her baby. So she's just going to continue the cycle. Yeah. Also, she has a lot of tattoos on her torso now. I wasn't too sure what that yeah, was about. She Looks has like some Yakuza tattooed. stuff. And so, like, she's permanently inked her skin. And mm -hmm. that seemed like a curious decision in terms of, is she now closing her body off to further words? Is that what's happening mm. here? Because wouldn't you want that blank canvas if this was going to be continued fetishistic expression? Or are we really just fully closing that chapter of that part of sexual exploration off? And you've, yeah, solidified the text that your body is. That's a curious statement at 28 to just yeah. solidify the text that I'm your body is. I'm a mom is. now. I can't get into that freaky shit anymore. We also have the ending of the actual pillow book historically, and historically it's ambiguous. Like scholars have tried to determine if what became of her, and there's two possible interpretations that I guess there's a debate as to whether she remarried and had a daughter or if she became a Buddhist nun. Mm. And I find it interesting that this film is kind of drawing from both in a little bit of a way. Like she hasn't remarried, but she does have a daughter. And 
she's not really becoming a Buddhist nun that we can totally see, but it does seem like in a way that she is closing herself off with this tattooing of her body to, you know, this current sort of lover chapter mm -hmm. of her life. So, yeah, this kind of, like, ambiguous ending that's a little bit of yeah. both from, like, the historical conclusion. We didn't mention it, but throughout the movie and here at the end, every now and then you'll get the superimposed shot of a woman who is in, I guess, high-end period-style clothing with the kind of rubbed-on cloudy eyebrow. She looks like uh, a character from an Akira Kurosawa period piece, or Jedi Geki, as they are known. That's where George Lucas got the term Jedi. Throwing that out there, because, you know, I, yeah, I, I, I looked that up one time. Yeah. I looked up something once. It, yeah. <laughs> it happens a lot throughout the movie, and it didn't occur to me until the end of the second watch that I thought, oh, that's the original woman narrating this for her, talking to her through the bounds of time, if you will. But that's like, I didn't even occur to me like, oh, that's who that is. Okay, that makes yeah. sense now. Some sense, finally. Yeah, because it's just the women with their pillow books throughout the ages, these fragments. Mm -hmm. Yeah, ultimately, that is what the pillow book is, is. It is a life in fragments, and that becomes what this movie is as well. Not only, not necessarily narratively a life in fragments, although it's that too, but just this strange filmic montage fragmented collage of film styles to try to get this sentiment across this idea of miscellaneous expression across so this is as close to the miscellaneous montage writing expression as one can come in film form so mm -hmm. i think it it's a cool film style choice Absolutely. and it's definitely a different film style than really any style that I can... It has its own I'm sure own other vibe. people have done this, all writing is rewriting, everything is a remix, but this is definitely one of the greatest examples I can imagine of it that we would have seen. I'm sure someone else has done this, but this is the first well, time we've seen parts it. of it, right? But to do exactly these different formless parts in the same one movie, mm -hmm. like, is... Yeah, there's probably addressed by sheer odds some other film out there that does it, but it's certainly not common to right. combine mm -hmm. all the variant styles that he's combining in yeah. the way that he does. Mm -hmm. And it becomes, yeah, this kind of fragmented collage text that is somehow more focused on sound than it is on, and like just like the texture than it is on the site. Yeah. And that is pretty cool. Top five. So, yeah, top five. Top all right, five. well, uh, I'll start. My honorable mention goes out to Ewan McGregor's dick. On the one hand, like, you know, good for you. On the other hand, fuck this guy. He looks like that, he can act, he sounds great, and he has that? Fuck him, man. But my number five is Ewan McGregor, because he's great in this movie, and I do applaud his consistent bravery uh, to show himself in a way that most male actors are not comfortable doing, and to take on very artistic and fascinating roles so early into his career. So, well done, Ewan. Okay, so hilariously, my honorable mention goes out to Ewan McGregor, and my fifth is to Ewan McGregor's dick. You know, I'm not shocked Inverse. by that Inverse. flip on us. <laughs> Ewan McGregor is really great in this. He has his swagger, he has his confidence, and I really respect that he offered his body up to the audience gaze mm -hmm. and to that objectification. 
And because of that, his body is actually a bigger part of this film than he is, right? Like, by default. And so the fifth one actually becomes his body as an object Mm -hmm. and the way that Ewan McGregor is going to position and allow his body to be treated. Very cool. So it's more like your number five is just Ewan McGregor's body, not just specifically his dick. Yeah, not just specifically his dick. Okay. All right. Fair enough. My number four is going to go to the set design for this thing, or just the artistic design overall, because the formalism really comes through when you watch this thing. There are so many gorgeous shots all the way through, and the shots are not gorgeous just because of their composition, but because of what is put into the frame of the image. Like those shots that we mentioned earlier of Nagako on her bed, and those gorgeous handwriting lights across her body and across the bed. There's a lot of symmetrical framing in this of someone between two giant panels of calligraphy or between two giant displays of bamboo in a room. All of it's just so beautifully done. And that starts with just really good set design. Cinematography comes second when it comes to this sort of thing. But the set design, artistic direction here, beautiful. (laughs) Yeah, my number four is going to go to Vivian Wu, our main Nagiko. Mm -hmm. She also, like you, and her body becomes a certain figure in and of itself, but she also maintains a lot of agency through that, so it's a very interesting kind of nuanced performance. We get a lot of shots of her body with writing on them, especially at the beginning. So -hmm. she also is showing her body in a way that Ewan is as well, but she also is just a much bigger part of this movie yeah. <laughs> and is kind of maintaining a certain type of something throughout that's very interesting. She accepts the material and she performs it well. Mm-hmm. My number three is Vivian Wu as well, for many of the same reasons that you just mentioned there. Her performance in a strange way, is very compelling throughout this film, even though it's not a film dependent upon a good performance. I suppose that my second honorable mention is her, I guess, ironic British accent that she uses in this. That just there's some weird rabbit holishness there that confuses me and confounds me. But there you go. My number three are the calligraphers on oh, this film. Damn it. Ahead of me. Okay, wait, go ahead. Go ahead. The writing on this is spectacular. Mm -hmm. I came away from this film with a much deeper appreciation of font and text, especially when we have those contrasts of like the lovers that she tries to take on that like have poor penmanship or Mm -hmm. even like Ewan McGregor starts to write Jerome on her arm. You scribbler. You know, he's writing it fine. But at the same time, you're like, you know what? You're right. That's that's not sexy. Not up to stuff. Yeah. I couldn't tell you why, but yeah. And then later there's different font and you're like, okay, no, I get it. That is sexy. Okay. So yeah, Yeah, those calligraphers. My number two is the calligraphers. I love that this is a movie where calligraphers get really high billing in the opening credits. You don't normally see that and you definitely see it here for a very beautiful reason. Having done a lot of work in graphic design myself, I can really appreciate just the subtle delicacies of good fonts and of good design, good spacing, good writing, good work with the quill or the brush as they are moving along. It's so wonderful to watch someone move the brush in a really fast way and you think to yourself, oh, they're they're doing that really fast. They screwed that up. But then you realize, no, no, that random movement isn't random. They're really laying on a very fine touch. Just watching someone who has such a masterful handling of the brush, they understand how the pen or how the ink and how all the 
hairs of the brush are going to move across a surface and its texture. That's just a beautiful, sexy thing to watch happen. So, yeah. It sounds like this film might have actually been a lot more up your alley. <laughs> oh, oh, in, so, in some ways, you know. I, As you I, go on about the calligraphy brush. That sexy, sexy brush. All right, so my number two is Peter Greenway. Okay. He has a style, and mm -hmm. it's an oddly timeless style, but also time-specific at the same time. Like, there were some moments in this that I'm like, oh my god, this does feel so 1996. But then there were other times that aren't really placeable because of all of the different decisions that this camera is making. And the fact that some are in black and white, and then some are in these like really saturated gold hues, and then mm -hmm. some are just filtered with blue, and then other <laughs> times it's widescreen. We seem to be drawing from every time period of <laughs> film history in terms uh, of what was, you know, like hot or yeah. whatever. Even though it's like that cell phone portrait vision at the beginning, before a time yeah. where we had cell phone portrait vision. A few scenes in sepia tones, I believe, <laughs> thrown in there yeah, for Yeah, like measure. the sepia tone scenes. Basically, it's, it's really hard to pinpoint a time frame for his movies, and that creates a really cool vibe. Also, the fact that he was able to create such a fetishistic lens. I always appreciate a, a director who understands the fetishistic lens. Well, working semi-backwards here, my number one is Paul Greenaway for many of the reasons that you also mentioned. I mentioned this at the very top, that the, my favorite thing about this movie is that it can make me respect a fetishistic approach to a given subject matter, and that's what he does here very well. But it was also just fascinating to see this very distinct, un- hitherto undiscovered style, at least by me anyway, which I've watched my fair number of movies, so I know many different styles, but I had never been exposed to formalism in quite this way before. So it was just wonderful to watch something that was inherently new to me and very distinct and very different from what I'm used to. And I have Paul Greenway to thank for that, so I am just very happy, and I look forward to exploring more of his films as I go along. Yes, so the top ones to explore, The Fall, Drowning by Numbers, mm -hmm. and then, like, The Thief, you know, The Cook, The whatever Wife, that whole Butcher the Baker, The Candlestick <laughs> whatever Maker. Whatever I said before. Then, you, yes, you're my number one. number one is the music and mm, sound okay. on this film. As I've mentioned throughout, sound is very, very important in the historical pillow book. It's very important in this movie. That opening, opening Tibetan chant is mm, so cool. Yeah. It's so satisfying. And the music that they choose throughout is also very, very sultry. There's also times in which it's very playful in like weird little moments, mm -hmm. and there's a lot of interesting mixtures of cultural music. So we get some Tibetan music, we get some traditional Chinese music, we get Japanese music, we get French music, right? Like it's this whole interesting blend of stuff. And it adds a lot to just like the viewing experience and the sensuality and the eroticism that's happening here. Also, I am not a native Japanese speaker, so what it would be it's to process some of these sounds on the language side of the brain is like a fascinating thing for me to think about. It's apparently a brain processing thing that I will never be able to experience, and there's something kind of bittersweet about that, because it's like, oh man, I wonder what that's like, mm -hmm. right? And so just to be reminded of that in that film that people process sensations differently and they process like sex differently and they even process sound differently depending on just learned experience and that's 
Very cool. Very cool. Mysteries of the human body. Mm, that's that is delicious. Yeah, this movie is way more erotic than like yeah. one would anticipate it being when you're like, oh, it's a book mm -hmm. about calligraphy and <laughs> turning people into books. No, it's hot though. It's it's, hot. it's done pretty well. I mean, kind of like what I said I love about Joel Schumacher films. It's like no matter what film he's doing, something sexy about it, or he's trying to make it sexy. Maybe sometimes it works, maybe sometimes it doesn't, but that's definitely the goal. It's just like, like that's a fucking sexy, man. I want to watch that. And yeah, there's some fucking sexy calligraphy happening in this movie, and that's not something you see very often. Yeah. yeah. But, uh, huh. well, I'm hungry. Um, I'm going to grab some ice cream downstairs. Uh, do you have a flavor I should check out, like chocolate, Rocky Road? Yeah, of course you would go to an ice cream place with such terms when it really is meant to... Yeah, unfortunately, once again, not a safe I was word. trying to be clever, London, for fuck's sake. No, but of course, you would go to an ice cream place with our safe word because you are, after all, so, so sadly vanilla. I am your skin. Skin, hair, nails, and etch 
systems health they numb your skin protected by keratin i help control your core temperature in my colors caused by the pigment melanin i'm escaping to the one place that hasn't been corrupted by capitalism space